So we're here at Marshall's with Liz for some holiday shopping. She's really nailing it this year, isn't she? Oh, yep. She's got a record player for Amy. A gorgeous cozy sweater for Jason. And some hot pink fluffy slippers for her sister. The perfect gift. Wait a sec. <gasps> She's getting a pair for herself. Well, with prices this good, it would be rude not to. You know what? She totally deserves it. Oh, totally. Happy holidays, everyone. See you at Marshall's. Fabulous brands. Feel good prices at Marshall's. Uh, well, a jobber reporting calls for us to come to the dressing room of Austin Idol and Tommy Rich. Officially in a history-making match tonight, Jerry the King Lawler lost his hair to Austin Idol. It should read to Austin Idol and Tommy Rich. Yeah, how do I like it? You ask it. I want to tell you what I think. I've seen a lot of wrestling. I've seen a lot of things done. That's the lowest thing I've ever seen done in my life. This guy, you've been planning this. You took care of everything. How did you end up getting in the ring? Yeah. What were you doing inside that cage? Let's Russell, excuse us. You come in to talk, but we don't need you in here. You know, I told you, Jerry Lawler, it was going to get intense. Real, real intense. I'm hungry, boy. Paulie, businessman. Look at that hair. <laughs> but what we're talking about, Jerry Lawler, and everything was your way. Austin Idol put to return all the money to the building, put his hair on the line. But the one thing you overlooked, you put a big 16, 20-foot cage but you forgot to look under the ring. Or you forgot to look when Pat Tanaka got out of the cage. They don't know where I came from. <laughs> Intense, Lawler. Now you're ashamed to show your face. He don't even show his face around me. What is that? <laughs> don't they realize something, T.R.? Don't they realize, Paulie, that I was born in Las Vegas, Nevada, Jack? I grew up not on a baby bottle. I grew up spinning the roulette wheel. I grew up playing five-card stud. I grew up pulling slot handles. I'm a gambler from the day I was born, and I'll gamble to the day I die. And Lawler, when I put my 50,000 bucks in the bank, I put it right in the bank. There was no shucking, no driving anymore than that. 50 grand of my money, brother. You said it came from a plane crash. It came from blood, from sweat, from tears. But you remember one thing. In Las Vegas, they always got a whole card. Hello, whole card. Hello, baby. You're my ace, brother. You're my ace. I love it. I love it. I love it. The greatest of all time. The new kings, rich, sexy, and mean, darling. King of the fools, Jerry Lawler, the people of Memphis, and you too, Lance Russell. Let me tell you, you had the ace up your sleeve. You didn't do it fair. That's all. Okay, let's finish it, man. That's enough. You know, not only the match itself, the promo, but a lot of the stories behind the scenes with this match is a lot of fun. Definitely a big moment in 1987. I know Jerry Lawler's had a lot of gimmick matches over his career, but this one is really at the top of the list. Now, just to clarify, Lawler did not get shaved bald, and I would say he ended up with a little bit more hair than a crew cut, but still, for Jerry Lawler to put his hair on the line in 87 against Austin Idol, not only were the fans in an uproar, but, you know, when you read reports that they almost started a near riot, that's not an exaggeration. I mean, the fans were shaking the cage. You know, I skimmed through the match, and I almost, it looked like one fan tried to climb the cage at some point. And that promo you just heard was Tommy Rich, Austin Idol, and their manager, Paul Dangerly. 
not dangerously, dangerly. That was his name in Memphis, Paul Heyman, Paul Dangerly. But it was a, it was a really really fun match. And another two little tidbits behind it. I was going to play clips of the match, but I decided to go with the promo instead. You know, Paul Dangerly cut a promo to the crowd and told the crowd that he promises to refund the money of every single fan in attendance if Austin Idol didn't win the match. And, you know, in this day and age, I don't know if he could get away with that. You know, maybe in an indie show with a couple hundred people, but when you have a full, sold-out Mid-South Coliseum doing that, in this day and age, the internet would be like, there's no way they're going to refund everybody in attendance. He's winning that match, blah, 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 blah. But still at that time, People bought into it. It was believable. And not only that, you know, Tommy Rich was under the ring, obviously, when he came out and started attacking Jerry Lawler. And the interviews and the stories over the years is that they put an inflatable mattress underneath the ring. I'm assuming they gave him an empty bottle in case he had to take a leak. You know, he wasn't going to pee all over the floor. They, they might have had one of those little plastic bottles that they give to the elderly people who are bedridden. And uh, he had a, a six-pack of beer. So for the whole night, he's under the cage, six-pack of beer, bottle of pee in, and he chilled until they had the cage match because once they locked the cage, it was wait, no one uh, going in and no one coming out. But very, very cool moment in the history. And, you know, the, the fact that the Southern Heavyweight title was also involved with this, and you don't even hear about it, it just, this was a tremendous match in 87 and i welcome everyone to this week in wrestling history we're up to episode 17 already and i know i've said it before a lot of you that are newer are like wait a minute why is this only episode 17 you've been doing these much more than 17 episodes well the official first episode was january the first week in january and if you notice this is the 17th week of the year so we're going to keep the episodes to coincide with the weeks in the year. This way, you know, if you remember moments in the summertime, you know to look around episode 26 and you can find stuff from the summertime. So anyway, this week we cover the period of April 24th through April 30th. So let's get right into it, shall we? I got to open up with a story that goes back to 1963. I know a lot of you out there never saw Dick the Bruiser wrestle. And I'm sure a lot of you out there never saw Alex Karras wrestle. But you will recognize the name Alex Karras because of a TV show that he did a while back. If you remember the show Webster, he was the father. Yes, he used to wrestle. Yes, he was a football player. And in 1963, there was a little bit of a debacle. It was a publicity stunt that had gone wrong. And, you know, it just, it's a big, it was a big fucking story in Detroit at that time. And there are news articles about it. You could see a lot of places have covered it over the years. I know a Detroit newspaper actually did a whole big story on it maybe a year or two ago. But here's basically the deal. All right, just to set this up a little bit. Um, Alex Karras played football for the Detroit Lions from 1958 through 1962. 
And then he also played from 1964 through 1970. Now, if you do the math, the only year that he didn't play during that time was 1963. Reason why? He was suspended for one year by the NFL because of gambling on professional football games. Now, I know a lot of people are going to say, wow, Pete Rose, lifetime ban on baseball, uh, Alex Karras, one year suspended. Yeah, well, you know, it was it was a lot more than just the gambling on the football games. Um, Alex Karras was involved with a bar. Uh, it was the Lindell Bar in Detroit, Michigan, and it was notorious for having, let's just say, the wrong people there. When you had uh, out-of-town sports teams come to the Detroit area, a lot of them would stay at the Lindell Hotel, which was just a you know a run-of-the-mill hotel. It wasn't anything great, and they would also frequent the Lind- Lindell Bar. So, with you know the questionable organized crime being involved with this, and Alex Karras refusing to sell his uh, share of the bar, that with the gambling, the NFL you know, suspended him for one year, all right? So now we got Alex Karras out of the way. William Aflis played for the Green Bay Packers from 1950 until 1954. He retired and went into professional wrestling instead, changed his name to Dick the Bruiser. And the reason why he retired from football is not because of injury, but because he realized at that time he could make more money pro wrestling than playing football. So we now have Dick the Bruiser, Alex Karras, you know, football players turned wrestlers, and Alex Karras actually did wrestle for, a, you know, for a short period of time. So they decided in 1963 they were going to have a wrestling event. And to try to generate additional attention to their match, they agreed to stage a bar fight in this Lindell Hotel. So the idea was that uh, the bruiser, Dick the Bruiser, was going to walk into the bar after midnight, like 1.30 in the morning. He was going to see Alex Karras in the bar already, and he was going to point them out, basically start calling them a whole bunch of names, exchange words, and then they were going to start having a big brawl. And you got to remember, this is 1963, so you didn't have TV cameras there, you didn't have radio there. The only way you would get publicity is through news reports. Everybody in the bar knew about the staged fight except for one of the owner's uncle, who was out of town but was visiting that weekend. So now they start the brawl. And one of the owner's uncle, who was the only person that wasn't in on this, he grabs a pull cue and starts basically wailing on Dick the Bruiser, busting his face open, needed stitches. People are just going crazy trying to break this up for real. Um, Alex Karras, who wants none of this, like I guess leaves the bar, uh, you know, abruptly. And not only that, apparently they had someone prepare a news story in advance to basically cover what went down. And when they went into the details, at one point, one of them was supposed to hit the other with a chair. I think Karras was supposed to hit Dick the Bruiser with a chair. But because of the melee with the uncle, not realizing that this was staged, Alex Karras never hit him with the chair. He left early. 
as this is all going down, you got to remember, this is 1963. You got beat cops walking up and down the beat. I mean, we have them today as well, but you usually get more on patrol cars. You have two cops walking up and down that beat in that area. They look inside the window. They see that there's a fight going on, and they start breaking it up, and they actually got hurt. So they bring in Alex Karras and Dick DeBruiser for questioning. They tell the police department that this was just a publicity stunt and, you know, they, they weren't really trying to hurt each other and this, this, and that. The problem is, is that two policemen legitimately got injured over it. So now here's where the conclusion is with this. They staged this fight only four or five days before the event. So five days later... They had their match in Detroit, Michigan. They had about 10,000 people show up, which they honestly were very disappointed in. They thought they were going to get more towards, you know, in the 20s as far as the crowd goes. Not only that, Alex Karras got $30,000 for his match. We don't know what Dick DeBruza got for his pay in this match, but they ended up having to pay out to the cops. The two cops that got hurt, $50,000. Neither one of them had to go to jail. But when you actually do the math, you know, you end up Dick DeBruza really getting stitches. The publicity came out, and a lot of people realized that it was staged. And then they ended up having to pay $50,000 to the two cops. And when you think about 1963, paying out fifty grand, that is a large sum of money. So I figured I'd share the story because it was a really big deal back in 63. We fast forward 10 years to 1973. Bruno San Martino defeats the Invader in a hair versus mask match for the St. Louis Wrestling Club in St. Louis, Missouri. The reason why I mention this is because when the Invader was forced to unmasked, he was revealed to be Dick Murdoch. Speaking of Bruno, you know, I know recently we had the unfortunate passing of Bruno San Martino. And if you watch a lot of the retrospective films, clips, videos posted online, a lot of it bring up the infamous match between he and Stan Hansen in 1976, where Stan Hansen was uh, trying to hit Bruno with a body slam. Bruno accidentally landed on his neck and his head, suffered a broken neck as a result of it. You know, that match actually ended not because of injury, but because of excessive bleeding. But believe it or not, that match actually took place this week in 1976. More Bruno. One year later, almost to the day, Bruno San Martino loses the WWF championship to superstar Billy Graham. This would end Bruno's second run as WWF champion, this title run ran 1,237 days. So Billy Graham, you know, it, it was an illegal pin. If you remember when superstar Billy Graham took on Backlund, there was a little questionable pin as well. So, but hey, this week in 77, Bruno San Martino loses the belt to superstar Billy Graham. Another major title change took place in 1981. And, you know, I kind of feel bad for Tommy Rich at this time because the magazines covered the abrupt win. He defeated Harley Race for the NWA World Heavyweight title in Georgia. Um, He didn't keep it that long. I think a lot of people forget 
the Tommy Rich only had the title for four days. Four days. That's it. But they made such a big deal about it in the magazines, having these articles, discussions, and, you know, look, I hate using the term, term kayfabe because, you know, I'm not a wrestler, but, you know, things were so kayfabe at that time, but still to see the amount of discussions being written, you know, just questioning Tommy Rich is the, you know, winning the title. I mean, they weren't revealing that it was predetermined, but the way they just wrote it, I just, I don't know. I mean, a lot of people, and, and don't get me wrong, not every article was negative towards Tommy Rich winning the belt. But, you know, I think a lot of people, when you look back at history, they sort of put Tommy Rich and Ron Garvin in the same category when it comes to titles. I know some people want to take it a step further and they put Rick Martel when it comes to AWA, but Rick Martel, I think, was a worthy champion. I liked Rick Martel as a wrestler, and uh, he actually, at some points, was very believable as heavyweight champion. Was he, was he a strong drawing champion? No, but I don't think that's all because of him. I think a lot of it was because of the climate, the atmosphere, the timing, the overall product that was being given at the time. But still, it was 1981 this week that Tommy Rich won the belt and then lost it four days later to Harley Race. 1983, Superfly Jimmy Snuka defeats Superstar Billy Graham. The reason why I bring this up, that was Billy Graham's last appearance in the WWF when he made his karate return. All right, I, I, I've said over the years, I was always a fan of Billy Graham, even the karate stuff. But now, for some reason, when I watch a lot of matches of Billy Graham doing a karate gimmick, he was a shell of what he was, you know, prior to when he had the, the hair and he was so much bigger with the steroids. We all know that he ultimately came back to the WWF. This was around the Hulkamania cartoon era and, you know, blew up again big time with steroids and then he had the surgery with the hip and the rest you know was history but in 83 this was when he was still karate superstar billy graham and this was his last match before leaving and the reason why he left was because he had an overdose of pills don't know if it was painkillers or not and um he was gone with the wwf he would show up in the AWA less than a month later because they were very desperate in need of talent. And he would stay with the AWA for a while, would work a couple other promotions, and then go back to the WWF in 87. This week in 1985, WWF and Hulk Hogan do something that we haven't seen since. And that is they made the cover of Sports Illustrated. I could tell you being a young wrestling fan at that time, it was a big deal to see pro wrestling on the cover of Sports Illustrated. And I got news for you. You could still buy this magazine on eBay. It does surface quite a bit. I actually have one in my collection. You know, everybody will always remember, you know, Hogan being on the cover and also the centerfold of the missing link, that infamous shot of him. And uh, it actually wasn't a bad article. I, I got to tell you. They talked about the rock and wrestling connection, Vince McMahon's changes of going nationwide instead of being regional. 
they profiled a lot of wrestlers in there. Some of the information was way off. I mean, honestly, I don't remember in 1985 Roddy Piper weighing 250 pounds. I could be wrong, but I think that's a little bit overblown. But they did a lot of profiles uh, from Hogan to the Iron Sheik, Nikolai Volkov, Junkyard Dog, Roddy Piper, Big John Studd, Andre the Giant. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Uh, one person who had some hilarious quotes in there was Bobby the Brain Heenan. And, it, I mean, he was talking a story on how one woman was cursing him out and her fake teeth flew out to the floor and he was stepping on them and she was begging him, please don't break my teeth. It's the only set I have. So he kicked the teeth towards her and she put it back in her mouth and she continued to curse him out. Now, we don't know if that story really happened or not, but still... Bobby Heenan was plastered all over this article. There was uh, one story he told about a fan dying, actually caught a heart attack and died in the audience, and a news reporter had asked him his thoughts on it, and he said it's one less per one less person that would be cursing him out. But it was a pretty damn good article. I'll tell you one thing about this article, if you've never seen it, especially if you don't like Dave Meltzer. Dave Meltzer is featured in this article, Quite a few quotes. I think at that time he was 24 years old. And, you know, I totally understand why some people uh, don't like Meltzer. He could rub people the wrong way. And, yes, he has a, a, a real love for Japanese wrestling. But, honestly, growing up, I was fine with Dave Meltzer. Sure, he's not 100% accurate with his results and his news and his newsletter. But who is? If you really think about it, who is? And um, I think just, you know, he gets gets an unfair shake sometimes. The guy actually does bust his ass. He makes good money from it. And I will never forget the kind gesture he did for Chris Candido, who we will mention a little bit later, because unfortunately there is an anniversary that we have to talk about involving Chris Candido as well. But still, as a wrestling fan growing up and seeing in 85 Hulk Hogan on the cover, it was it was surreal. It really was. It, but it was it, again. If you never saw it, you want a nice little collectible. Go on eBay. You'll usually find one there. And you know what? You'll probably find a few issues that were autographed by Hulk Hogan as well. It's a really good article, and there are archives online if you actually want to go check them out. 1986, the late great Owen Hart makes his pro wrestling debut. He won his debut match. Wrestling for Stampede Wrestling, he teamed up with Bruce Hart and defeated the Angel of Death and Robbie Stewart. I don't know if this match exists, the video, but I'm going to go seek it out, see if I can find it. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, it was this week in 87 and Austin Isle defeated Jerry Lawler, uh, not only for the Southern Heavyweight title, but also the hair versus uh, hair match. Paul Dangerly as the referee. And that same week, Ken Patera, makes his WWF return after serving two years in jail for the McDonald's incident that we talked about not too long ago in one of the previous episodes. And in his return, he de defeated Hercules by disqualification after Bobby Heenan and Harley Race interfered. At that time, Harley Race was, you know, a decent heel in the WWF. Bobby Heenan, I don't even need to explain that. Hercules was also a decent heel. And um, they really wanted to get Ken Patera over as a sympathetic babyface because of what happened with jail. Now, you look at the interviews and you read a little bit more over the years, a lot of people are not sympathetic to Harley Race. 
But at that time, they wanted to bring him in as the sympathetic baby face. And, you know, it was what it was. So, by the way, we do have audio clips coming up because there were some major, major moments in wrestling history that took place this week. A lot of them have to do with the Attitude Era. And, you know, I could have put 30 clips up here. There were so many things to choose from. But I did a select few, and I really think that you will enjoy them immensely. 1988, for the NWA, Worldwide Wrestling Tapings in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Fantastics, Bobby Fulton and Tommy Rogers defeated Bobby Eaton and Stan Lane in the Midnight Express to win the NWA U.S. Tag Titles. This would end the 345-day title reign of the Midnight Express, the longest title reign in that title's lineage. So there you go, 1988. 1989, Saturday night's main event, Hulk Hogan defeats the big boss man in a steel cage to retain the WWF title. After that match, Zeus, that was his debut in wrestling. He would show up, attack Hulk Hogan, this would set up the, the storyline between the two uh, following the No Holds Barred movie, which we covered not too long ago. So it was this week in history that Zeus made his pro wrestling debut. Remember him in WCW as Z-Gangsta? <laughs> I like that name, Z-Gangsta. 1989, Jimmy Snooker defeats Bar Zukov. This was Jimmy Snooker's return to the WWF after a three-year absence. He was gone in 86 you remember the, the stories and the controversy right after WrestleMania? You know, he was here for a little bit, and then he disappeared for a couple of years, and then he made his return. 1989, Rey Mysterio Jr. makes his pro wrestling debut. Now, I don't know what his debut match was. This could very well be his debut match. I don't know. But this match took place sometime, I believe, early May, it was for the World Wrestling Association in Tijuana, Mexico. He uh, was advertised as Rey Mysterio II. He teamed up with Bello Adan and Vengador Jr. And they lost to Anar Anarquista, El Simbolo, and Genghis Khan. So there you go. And uh, finally, for 1989, New Japan Pro Wrestling debuts at the Tokyo Dome with Superpowers Clash. Over 40,000 fans in attendance. It was a tournament to crown the first IWGP heavyweight champion. And who won that tournament? Big Van Vader. He defeated Shinya Hashimoto to win the title. Luthez was a special guest referee. And during that tournament, we had the debut of Jushin Thunder Lager. As Jushin Thunder Lager. During that uh, tournament, he defeated Kuniaki Kobayashi. So there you go. And once again, you know, I'm believe me when I tell you, everyone, for the Lucha Libre and the Japanese names, I am trying my hardest to pronounce everybody correctly. I think, honestly, I've been doing a pretty damn good job of it so far. And as time progresses, it'll get even better. So a lot of history in Mexico and Japan that we will always include here as well. Got some really wacky stories to reveal later as well. 1992, ECW, Eastern championship wrestling they crowned their first ecw champion in philadelphia pennsylvania how they did it they had two separate battle royals the winner of the first battle royal would take on the winner of the second battle royal and they would face each other to determine who would be the first ever ecw champion 
The winner of the first battle royal was Sa- Wildman Sal Balomo. The winner of the second battle royal was Superfly Jimmy Snuka. And Snuka would beat Sal Balomo to become the ECW heavyweight champion. Now, just as I said earlier about Tommy Rich only having that belt for four days, you know, we always hear Jimmy Snooker, first ever ECW champion. I think a lot of people don't realize he held that title for how long? He held it for one day. He lost it to Johnny Hotbody, who then became the ECW champion the following day. 1992, Sid Justice loses to the Ultimate Warrior. This week at the Boston Garden in Boston, Massachusetts, this was Sid Justice's uh, first run in the WWF. Now, for those that don't know the details behind this one, shortly before WrestleMania 8, Sid Justice failed a drug test. Now, at that time, there was no wellness program like there is today. You didn't have to announce publicly the suspensions. You didn't even have to have people start serving the suspensions. But what had happened was he tested positive for drugs. WWF was going to suspend him. They had him work not only Mania, but they also had him work the European tour. They got back from the European tour, and they told him at the Boston Garden that after that match with Ultimate Warrior, he was going to start serving his suspension. He was pissed off, stormed out of the Boston Garden, quit the company, and would not be seen until his appearance for WCW in 1993, in May of 93. And by the end of that year, he was gone from WCW. So, you know, look, I'm sure part of these reports might have been disputed over the years, but I'm telling you things as they happened in real time during that time. So a couple other tidbits from 1992. Uh, The buzz around the wrestling world, some magazines picked up on it. Meltzer covered it in his newsletter. John Arezzi covered it in his radio show. I was not doing hotlines yet. I was five years away from that. But a lot of buzz was coming out of the uh, promotion in Canada called, I believe, the West 4 Wrestling Alliance. It was a tag team that had formed, and the team was called Sudden Impact. And people were just ranting and raving on how great this tag team was. High-flying, great look to them. Just really gelled with each other. And who made up the team's sudden impact? Chris Jericho and Lance Storm. Yes, they would ultimately be called the Thrill Seekers. But at that time, in 92, he they were known as Sudden Impact. Also in 92, Jim Cornette's Heavenly Bodies become the first Smoky Mountain Wrestling Tag Team Champions. They beat the Fantastics in the tournament final uh, in Harrogate, Tennessee. Finally, to wrap up 1992. There was a former wrestler and former referee by the name of John Bonello. Now, if you watch WrestleMania 3, you'll see him refereeing those matches. He refereed a lot of big-time matches in the WWF during that time, including Hogan versus Kamala in their feud, Hogan versus Orndorff. John Bonello, if you were a fan of wrestling in the, in the early to mid-'80s, you would recognize him. You could do a Google image search and you'll see it, but... It was this week in 1992 that he was sentenced to 18 months in prison, 360 hours of community service, and three years probation. And the reason why he was sentenced to that was because he hired an undercover police officer posing as a hitman, and he hired him to kill his wife. 
And if you read the story, they actually blamed um, John Bonello's, you know, just they said he flipped out taking steroids, taking drugs, cocaine downers, pot. It just took a whole, you know, big cocktail of narcotics. And between that and steroids, they actually uh, said that there was a, a psychological reason to be uh, behind Benello, you know, just flipping out, wanting to kill his wife. And they actually bought that. Not only that, his wife defended him and, uh, you know, really stuck up for him. Now, the, the prosecuting attorney tried to tie in that he was trying to kill his wife to collect $53,000 of insurance money. He had uh, an affair with a, with a topless dancer, a stripper, at a bar that he bounced at. And um, so that's the prosecution's point of this. But they actually compromised and, uh, you know, they, they settled. He went to jail for 18 months, had the big fine, and um, the rest is history. So it's just, if you read the case, it is pretty interesting because the wife uh, really, truly believed that it was all the drugs and um, the steroids that made his hu her husband flip out that they really loved each other. Now, once they got out of the jail, I don't know how long they stood married. I never bothered to research their personal relationship, but um, at that time, they were they were reconciling. So there you go. Now we go to our first audio clip, Smoky Mountain Wrestling. There was a debut of a woman. We had never seen her before. We have never heard her before. And in the synopsis, I posted a photo of her from 1993. Now, she looks very young in that photo. I think she was 19 years old at this time. But she was not an experienced wrestler, experienced valet, experienced manager, she was um, the, I believe, the, the girlfriend at the time of Chris Candido. I, I think they were dating, and, she, and Chris was bringing Tammy Sitch to events, and they decided to start using her on an on-air role. So they brought her in. Her name was Tammy Fitch. They advertised her from Wesley College, I believe it was, and the storyline of her being brought in was that she was going to file a sexual discrimination lawsuit against Smoky Mountain Wrestling because they really had no women hired for that company. Now, if you've never heard the promo, the promo's not good. Uh, she was new, so you can't blame her. But when you listen to the promo and who she idolizes, it actually, you'll find it very interesting, especially the fact that this is 1993. And what year are we in now? So I present to you the first clip, Tammy Sitch, her first promo, uh, being introduced to the wrestling world in Smoky Mountain Wrestling as Tammy Fitch. Fans, a very unusual situation has come up in Smoky Mountain Wrestling. This young lady is Tammy Fitch. Now, the Smoky Mountain Wrestling attorneys have advised us to let her have her say here on the program. Tammy? My name is Tammy Fitch. Of the New England Fitches, I'm sure you've heard of us. No, I don't think so. My family's very well connected. I can't believe you haven't heard. At any rate, the reason I'm here today is because I have filed a sexual discrimination lawsuit against Smoky Mountain Wrestling. Because since this promotion began, it hasn't employed a woman in any prominent position. No women managers, announcers, promoters, and especially commissioners. And you want to change that? 
I am currently enrolled in Wellesley College, the same school that my personal idol, Hillary Clinton, attended. Mrs. Clinton has proven that a woman can do anything she wants, and I have decided to make a difference in this organization by becoming the first woman to hold a prominent position. Well, now, you mentioned announcing, managing, promoting. Which do you want to do? Well, I can do all, but I'll probably start with managing, if I can find someone suitable. Why did you choose pro wrestling, Tammy? Well, big men who aren't too bright amuse me. So after I can prove that I can master managing, I'll move on to announcing, promoting, maybe even commissioner. Bob Armstrong won't be around for long. Now, if you see the video, you know she's looking at the wrong camera. You can see that she's nervous. But you know what? I mean, how hot was she in 93? I mean, how hot was she for a while? Um, you know, look, things happen. People get older. You know, some people age well. Some people don't. I'm not saying that she's not aging well or or or, or if she isn't. All I'm saying is, is that unfortunately, people do look different as they get older. You know, recently I've been butting heads with people online because every I, there's so many people out there that think that Paige is going to uh, live forever and look like she's 19, 20 years old. It's just not the case. But there you go. That happened this week in 1993. Tammy Fitch. Another audio clip, and this is also from 1993, and this is classic botchamania. It's wrestle crap. And, it, and it's sad because the storyline at that time was a big deal. Especially for the GWF in Texas But I just don't understand What the fuck were they thinking with this It was pretty funny Now let me just paint the picture of this You had uh, GWF uh, Coming up with an event called the Supercard It it took place this week in history Last week To set this up a little bit further Skandor Akbar had thrown a fireball In the face of Mike Davis and Mike Davis was a big-time babyface at that time, really, really over with the crowd. So the storyline was that Mike Davis had suffered a whole bunch of burns on his face. So he showed up at GWF Supercard Super as the mystery partner of Angel, and Mike Davis and Angel took on Black Bart and Falcone in a match. So now when he shows up, at the supercard, he's got all of this really, really good makeup job on his face, selling the fireball from the week before. Now, in hindsight, it might have been smarter for them to maybe wrap some gauze on his face, maybe put a big, you know, gauze pad with some tape, you know, just something. But they decided to go with a really, really impressive makeup job. Now, yeah, you know, you sweat. Some of the makeup comes off. You expect that. But for some reason, during the match, this happens. This audio clip is only one minute long, but just pay attention to it. Just picture in the ring Mike Davis with all of these quote-unquote burns on his face, and then this happens. Oh, look at that! Black Bart just, just picked up a cup and threw something in the face of crazy... He just picked something up and threw it in the face of crazy, and now Bart is working on that burn, that burn where where Akbar threw that fireball, and and that's the place that Black Bart. Look at him right there. He got fired one week, Doyle. He got ice this week. I think that's balancing things out. I guess, out, you, don't I guess you? you think that's cute, fire and ice, huh? <laughs> now look, we all 
Monday morning quarterback when it comes to storylines, you know, things will happen or there'll be swerves or decisions, belts, title changes, feuds, and, you know, the next day we'll have our, you know, retort about it. You know, watching this clip and watching the match and seeing for no reason at all a cup of water being thrown in this guy's face and then they're smashing his head in the turnbuckle and this and that, you know, think of all the fans who were in attendance that night watching this junk. I would have started a storyline immediately where Falcone and Black Bart were exposing that Mike Davis was a fraud, that he didn't suffer any burns, and they were doing everything they can to show to everyone that he was a fraud. But, you know, at that time, though, you know, it was looked a lot different. So, 1993, the Lightning Kid was hired by the WWF and he appeared on Monday Night Raw. Now, if you don't know who the Lightning Kid is, that was, and still is, Sean Waltman. I don't know, he doesn't wrestle as the Lightning Kid anymore, but um, Sean Waltman at that time wrestled as a Lightning Kid. He showed up on Raw, got totally squashed by Doink the Clown. The match is on the WWE Network, and he's wearing his Lightning Kid outfit because it says El Kid on it. But when they advertised him to the fans on Raw, he was announced as the Kamikaze Kid. So he went from the Kamikaze Kid to the Lightning Kid to the One Two Three Kid in all a very short period of time. So there you go. That same event on Raw this week, we saw a promo video of a tag team that was going to be coming in by the name of the Smoking Guns, Billy and Bart Gunn. So there you go. And that same week, WWF signed Bonnie Blackstone. You all know her from the GWF. You know, she the wife of Joe Pettisino. She signed with WWF, and she worked for WWF on TV for a period of time doing some, you know, interview segments. Not only that, I wonder how many of you out there even remember the name Tamara Murphy working in the WWF in early 1995. You know, you we always remember Sonny being brought in with Skip and the Body Donnas. But if you never knew, Tammy Sitch actually did some commentating. She did a segment for WWF. I can't remember the name of it right now, but um, go look it up. Tamara Murphy. She actually uh, was doing a little bit of work. I think she did it in around January of 95. And then it was a couple of months later where they officially brought her in with Skip. So figure that out. You get a kick out of it. 1994, Ric Flair versus Ricky Steamboat for the last time. Now, going back at that time, we don't know if WCW had consciously realized that this would be the last meeting between the two. Because when you think about it and when you realize the results and where this took place, you left scratching your head saying, this is where you want the last fight to be? Again, I don't think WCW at that time realized that these two would never face each other in the ring again. But it ended up being this way. And I got to be honest with you. I know WCW was trying to get eyes to the Saturday night program as much as possible. Remember, this is 1994. This is a year before Monday Nitro. But I don't know why they thought this was a great idea. Even if Ric Flair and Ricky Steamboat would have faced each other again after this night, 
but they decided to have Flair versus Steamboat on a WCW Saturday night taping for the heavyweight title. Now, you go back to WCW Saturday night and you look at that audience. A lot of it was just tourists. They weren't diehard wrestling fans. In fact, you read stories on how they used to have a light, apparently a light that when it went a certain color, the fans were triggered to cheer for whoever's entering the ring. And if it, I guess, went to a different color, they would boo. That's pretty much the concept. A lot of people in that crowd didn't know who Ricky Steamboat was, didn't know who Ric Flair was. And you're watching this match take place. And yes, in hindsight, you realize it's the last time they ever faced each other. But to have it for the world heavyweight title, and Ric Flair won the heavyweight title this night. Wow. I mean, it's one of the most horrible crowds that I have ever seen witness a major title change on an event. Any promotion, anywhere. I just... For the life of me, I don't understand the logic of having a world title change happen on WCW Worldwide. But it did happen this week in 94. Also in 94 on Monday Night Raw, because yes, Raw was in existence at that time. The Head Shrinkers defeated the Quebecers for the tag titles. Captain Will Albano was managing the Head Shrinkers at that time, and that was the last team he would pretty much manage in the WWF and, on top of it, win tag titles. Another match that took place on Raw that night, Earthquake over Yokozuna in a sumo match. Now, I know on the surface you're going to say, wow, you know, Earthquake over Yokozuna shouldn't have been the opposite. Do some research on the real-life history of John Tenta. Real deal. That's all I'm going to say, real deal. So if you want to go back and watch this match, it's actually, you know, it's not the greatest, but when you understand John Tenta's background in Japanese wrestling, uh, it this was a good deal. This was a pretty cool match. Heading over to 1995, Hunter Hurst Humsley defeats Buck Rock and Roll Zumoff. Uh, in his WWF debut, it wasn't for Raw. It happened during one of their episodes of the Action Zone. And what was Triple H's finisher for his first ever match in the WWF? A diamond cutter. Continuing with 1995, an event that is just, you see the photos and it's just unreal, the amount of people that attended. Biggest wrestling event in history, easily. And I know in recent news, a lot of the buzz was WWE going to Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia's, you know, their, their mistreatment towards women, LGBT, a lot of things that, you know, us, you know, in the free world are, are against. But the one thing with Saudi Arabia, and I've talked about this before, this is not about social studies, I'm just doing history, is Saudi Arabia is an ally of the United States. In 1995, North Korea was not an ally of the United States or Japan, and they still aren't to this day. I, I don't need to give you a history res- lesson on North Korea. They are barbaric, the way they treat their people. They are blocked off from the rest of the world. You talk about Saudi Arabia trying to advance their culture and be more modernized. North Korea is probably 500 years behind. That's how bad it is. But in 1995... There was a two-day wrestling event that took place in North Korea. Officially, publicly, it was announced that 150,000 people attended the first day. 190,000 people attended the second day. I know 
Some people over the years have disputed it and said that only 160,000 people attended total. Still, by far, the biggest attendance in wrestling history. Um, you read interviews from wrestlers, especially the interviews that Ric Flair has done over the years about wrestling in North Korea. You know, he talks about how, you know, they, they couldn't, you know, travel around and, you know, people were not allowed to, like, communicate at home. And there was one, I can't remember what wrestler it was, but he just wanted to, it was all propaganda. It was all propaganda. There was even a point where they wanted Ric Flair to do an interview putting over North Korea. And you, when you just read, read the articles about it. I mean, this event was nothing about, no, uh, nothing but North Korea, North Korea telling the world you know, that they're a power, but, you know, it's still, you see, you know, how they handled the crowd and the, the, the way that they synchronized with these cards and the, the kids doing all, it just, it's mesmerizing. It's just, it's a shame because the country is really fucked up, but still it was mesmerizing. And the, the cards those days, I'll share them with you. Again, this is not an WWE network. I don't know if it's if it's because maybe WWE doesn't own the rights to it or maybe they don't want to air it because it happened in North Korea. I, I don't know the deal. But uh, unfortunately, we do not have access to this on the network. But uh, the card results, for those that are curious, since it did draw you know the biggest crowd of all time, first night was Yuji Nagata over Tomokiz, Tomo, to, Tokomitsu Ijizawa. Bonacano and Akiro Hokuto over Manami Toyota and Mariko Yoshida. Hiroshi Hase over Wild Pegasus. Wild Pegasus! That, yeah, that one. Masahiro Chono and Hiro Saito over El Samurai and Tadeo Yasuda. Two Cold Scorpio over Shinjiro Otani. Uh, Kensusi Suzaki over Masa Saito. And the main event, Shinya Hashimoto. Fought to a 20-minute time limit draw against Scott Norton for the IWGP heavyweight title. Day two, Hiro Saito over Yuji Nagata. For the CMLL women's title, Akira Hokuto over Bull Nakano. Black Cat over El Samurai. Wild Pegasus. Wild Pegasus over Two Cold Scorpio. Masahiro Chono and Scott Norton over Takayuki Izuka and Akira Nogami. Road Warrior Hawk over Tadeo Yashuda. The Steiner Brothers, Rick and Scott over Hiroshi Hase and Kensuke Sazaki. And the main event, Antonio Inoki over Ric Flair. And all the reports coming out of this match was that it was really one of Ric Flair's uh, best matches in recent years. Um, it was just outstanding. So I figured I'd share with everyone. Big deal in 1995, a, a huge deal in 1995. Now, wrapping up 1995, now look, WCW's first ever episode of Monday Nitro didn't air, I believe, until September 4th of 1995. So we'll cover it later on this year. But it was this week in history that uh, there was an announcement by Hulk Hogan that he was going to be opening up a new restaurant in the Mall of America on June 15th. And the name of the restaurant was going to be called Pasta Mania. Now, I know the first episode of Monday Nitro, September of 95, Labor Day weekend, 
you know, they did a promo of Hulk Hogan standing in front of Pasta Mania with the Pasta Maniacs, I guess you could call them. But they originally were going to open this restaurant up a couple of months earlier. And I'll get into some of the menu items and the prices in a moment. You know, because look, you know, 1995 is not that long ago, but you see these prices and you can't help but to feel like this was ghetto food just because of the how cheap they were. You know, prices have changed over the years. I don't know if they've changed this much, but what you may have never heard was the original opening of Pasta Mania where they showed up at the Mall of America. It was Hogan, Savage, I think Tony Schiavone might have been there, Eric Bischoff, and they basically cut some promos. And then after the promos were done, there was a pasta eating contest between Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. I have yet to find the footage of the pasta eating contest, but I wonder if any of you out there had ever heard uh, the original opening, you know, the little thing, the promos that they cut. So I'm not going to play the whole thing right now, but I'll share with you Hulk Hogan's promo opening up Pasta Mania. This happened at the Mall of America in Minneapolis. Tremendous fans, I'm sure. Uh, looking forward to seeing you here again. And this time you're coming in to open a restaurant. Tell us about that. Well, you know something, brother? Hulk Hogan's been running wild for a long time around the Twin Cities. And usually when the Macho Man and Hulk Hogan come to the Twin Cities, we're here to wrestle people, time and knots, brother, and run around and entertain all of our Hulkamaniacs. But it is so crazy to see all the pasta maniacs, brother, running around the Mall of America because what you gonna do, pasta maniacs, when pasta maniacs? Runs wild on you, brothers. Well, I understand you're going to, uh, you know, fans all over the world is, have, have heard about say your prayers, take your vitamins, but now there's one more part to that. It's eat your pasta, right? Well, you know something, brother? All the people in the Mall of America love to come here to have a good time. And we'd like to thank the Mall of America for letting Hulk Hogan in the doors to open Pasta Mania. But, you know, when you're when you're out with all your little teeny Pasta Maniacs and you're riding a log ride or you're shopping for new clothes or a lot of toys and stuff, you don't want to sit down and waste time, brothers, eating for two or three hours or standing in line at some restaurant. So we got Pasta Mania in the food court. You can stop, have a quick and healthy meal, and you can keep on shopping until you drop. Because once you eat Hulk Hogan's Pasta Mania, brother, not only are you going to get the energy, the pythons, as you're pushing the shopping cart around, they're going to start to swell. You'll be able to pick more merchandise up off the shelves. The kids will be able to carry more toys. And then when you get real tired, you're going to stop one more time at Pasta Mania before you go out to the parking lot. Ooh, yeah! What you gonna do when Pasta Mania and Hulk Hogan run wild on you? Oh, yeah. All right. You got autographs. Your chance to meet Green Hulk Hogan, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Check out Pasta Mania before you go. And don't forget the pasta eating cook-off. In the red corner, Hulk Hogan. In the blue corner, the Macho Man, Randy Savage. Check it out. Now, just for the record, the original plan was to have five restaurants open in 1995. I think they were supposed to span across three states, Maryland, 
um, Minnesota, and Pennsylvania. I think they were going to try to open up two in Philly, uh, one in Baltimore, and two in Minneapolis. And then in 1996, they wanted to open up 25 more. They wanted it to be a franchise, but they wanted it to be mainly inside malls. So you're shopping around, you want to get something to eat, blah, 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 blah. You stop in Pasta Mania, blah. Well, obviously, we know that it turned out to be a disaster. I think they only opened up the one, and it went out of business, I think, within a year. And for those that are curious, what were the menus like at that time? Well, you can get a pasta dish for $4.49. You could mix and match the pasta, the type of pasta, and the type of sauce you wanted. So the type of pasta is available was fettuccine, nuggets, which I think I I I think they might have been in the shape of Hulk Hogan heads. I kid you not, but you had fettuccine, nuggets, penne, shells, and angel hair pasta, which is a very very thin spaghetti. The sauces would be marinara, Alfredo, pesto, white clam sauce, and garlic and oil. You also got some salad and some bread with it. It's not fucking bad. $4.50. Nice plate of pasta, some sauce, bread, salad. Then you could get international pastas. For $4.99, you could get Swedish meatballs, pasta mexicana, which I don't know, probably involved cheddar cheese and some spicy sauce, or beef stroganoff. For $4.99, you could get Hulk's Power Pasta, which is penny pasta over chicken, vegetables, and your choice of either chicken marinara or fettuccine primavera. And then you could also add some additional sides. For an additional $1.25, you could add chicken. For an additional $0.95, you could add veggies. For each meatball, meatball, $1.25, you want some extra bread, 75 cents, another side of pasta, $1.99. You see how cheap these prices are. Now, for little pasta maniacs, little kids, you could get Hulkaroni and cheese or cheeseburger pasta Hulkios for $2.99. Now, again, I know prices have changed over the years, but that seems awfully, awfully cheap even for that standards. I mean, you're going to get a pasta dish for three, th- less than three bucks for a kid. Yeah, I know it's probably a very small amount, but still, even to add chicken, $1.25, there's restaurants in my neighborhood that if you order like a Caesar salad, you want to add chicken to it, it's like seven, eight bucks. So, but there you go. So it was this week in history that the announcement was made, Pasta Mania, brother, was coming to the Minneapolis Mall of America. Let's shoot to 1996. Now we're getting close to a plethora of audio clips. First, we have this week in 1996, In Your House, Good Friends, Better Enemies. The reason why I mention this card, this was the last WWF televised event for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash before leaving for WCW. Look, you remember the infamous incident in Madison Square Garden, the click? Well, this was the last televised event for Scott Hall and Kevin Nash in the WWF. I still remember the match that Razor Ramon had with Vader, and we all knew that Razor was leaving, and we were surprised on how great this match was. I know a lot of people expected squash matches, but Vader and Razor Ramon did very, very well. Shawn Michaels versus Diesel. Watch that match again. When you realize as you're watching it that that was Diesel's last match televised before going to WCW, 
it, that was phenomenal. Arguably one of the greatest matches in Diesel's career. And I'm not exaggerating. Go look it up. No, no joke. No joke. 1997, a little weird stuff went down. Howard Stern, doing his radio show here in New York, caller calls up from New Jersey, claiming to be an independent wrestler, and he wanted to talk to Howard about fantasizing, of being a serial killer, and talked about how he used to beat up hookers, he would punch them and pound them with body shots, even hit them with a baseball bat, leaving them you know, bloody in agony and pain, and... I never heard the call. I don't know if the audio is online. I didn't bother seeking it out. I, maybe I should have. It would have been interesting to play it on the show. But at that time, Howard Stern took the call very seriously. And basically, they were trying to figure out if it was a prank call or if it was legit. And they were trying to bait the person to reveal his identity. They wanted to call the cops. Now, quite honestly, I think in hindsight, they should have just called the cops anyway. Um, when I reveal who it is, you know, God rest his soul. You know, this guy was one of the coolest motherfuckers in Northeast independent wrestling. And when I mention his name, I know a lot of people who maybe no longer wrestle, who listen to these shows or still wrestle in the Northeast. You'll pop for this one. Cause I wonder how many of you out there even knew about this story. But so Howard Stern is trying to bait this person to reveal his name. Now, he never reveals his name, but a couple little hints at the time. He revealed that he had recently wrestled Jason Knight, former ECW champion, and the next match that this person was going to be involved in was a tag team match against a team called NC-17, and it was a fans bring the weapons match. And because Howard Stern at that time was pretty much a New York show, you know, everybody figured that it was probably somebody on the Northeast, an indie wrestler, basically pranking. And that's what ended up happening. The person who I who ended up being ID'd as the individual claiming to have been fantasizing about being a serial killer. It's not funny, but it is pretty fucking twisted. Fat Frank. Frank Iadavia. So, yeah, Fat Frank was the one who made the prank call. Now, I guess if we would have been listening to this at the time, a a lot of us would have realized that maybe it was Fat Frank because Fat Frank's voice, you you can't mistake it. And uh, God rest his soul, he is no longer with us. But, you know, what he did for Jersey All Pro Wrestling is fucking phenomenal. So many great memories, Jersey All Pro Wrestling. I told a lot of you in the past, Fat Frank... Not only besides Jersey All Pro Wrestling, he had a small wrestling promotion as well. I don't remember the name of it. I don't know if it was JSW. I I can't remember the name. But basically, it took place in Jersey as well. It was a very small place. Might seat, what, 50 people? And that was used for up-and-comers. You would have, you know, a, a legend make an appearance. I was there when Tito Santana signed autographs. There is a photo of me with Tito Santana from that night. And I actually ended up managing four events over there. Uh, He actually had me perform at this school for four events. I managed the BQE, Reefer and Jay Lover, four times. And one time I fucking loved it. They let me smoke a cigar and I actually burned the guy in the head with the cigar after and one of the, my favorite moments ever doing 
managing on indies, and I wish that footage was recorded. It was it just everything played out so great that day, and I loved it. Fat Frank was an awesome, awesome guy. I know so many people in the Northeast fucking will have nothing but great things to say about Fat Frank, so rest in peace. 1998, we had the first annual Brian Pillman Memorial Show, and it featured talent from, uh, you know, WCW, HWA, WWF. Um, Steve Austin and Sonny, I think, emceed the event that night. They raised over $20,000. And those who participated that night on the card, Nick Dinsmore over Trailer Park Trash, Reno Riggins and Steve Dunn over Brian Taylor and the Bounty Hunter, Flash Flanagan over Bull Payne, Chip Fairway and Shark Boy over Sean Casey and Tarek the Great, uh, Al Snow over Chris Candido, and Chris Benoit over Chris Jericho. Now, if you remember last week's episode, I had talked about how last week was the anniversary of Buff Bagwell suffering a very serious injury in the ring in a match that involved him and Rick Steiner. Well, we learned this week in 1998 that Buff Bagwell suffered four crushed vertebrae in his neck because of the whiplash uh, that happened. He had uh, the inability to move his arms and his legs for a temporary amount of time, um, but he was able to regain, you know, some mobility. He had uh, neck and spinal surgery this week to fuse the C3 and C4 vertebrae and also the C5 and C6 vertebrae. Um, So he was in stable condition. Um, They thought that he would make close to a full recovery, but still it was a major, major injury at that time. And they said he was about three centimeters away from possibly being crippled for life like Christopher Reeve. That's what they compared it to. So, you know, Buff Bagwell escaped some even more uh, of a serious injury, and that's pretty serious as it is, so it's a pretty fucking big deal. This week in 1998, WWF had the Unforgiven pay-per-view. The two moments that I will, will always remember coming out of this event, first off, The Undertaker defeating Kane in an Inferno match, which was awesome, and an evening gown match between Sable and Luna Vachon. I originally was going to use a screenshot of Sable in her bra and panties from that night. Of, I mean, I know people will always remember the, the, the handprints on her tits, but my God, my God, my God. Just go back and just watch that. It is just, I mean, um, she just looked amazing that night. And me, I'm a brunette type of guy. I, I'm, I'm not into blondes. But Jesus Christ, the, the, just look at the broad panther, just insane. Oh, yeah, and this week in 1998, this also happened on Monday Night Raw. Today, we embark on a mission. We have seen the enemy, and they are near. So today, we will go down there. Down where, sir? And we will blow them out of the water. This mission will start at the Norfolk Scope with WCW wrestling. And it will end right here tonight at the Hampton Roads Coliseum for Raw is 
war. This is your mission if you choose to accept it. Ladies, except, ladies and gentlemen, it will be all for one and one for all. Now, suck it and let's go get him. Don't touch it. Get your hat. Don't lose your head. Just want to have a word with you. If you just got a second, please open the door. 
I even need to get into that at all? I mean, shots fired. I mean, it really was, it, it was insane. I mean, you listen these days, you know, Kurt Angle makes a joke on Raw and mentions the letters TNA, which is really out of business right now, and people fucking have their balls in a bunch. Corey Graves accidentally says Bullet Club on TV instead of Balor Club, and the fucking internet goes crazy. Could you imagine seeing an entire segment of TX in this day showing up at WCW? Oh, my God. It was a big deal at that time. It was fucking awesome, man. 1999, big week. For WCW and WWF, you could see the tide turning on both both products. When I get into each one, you will see clearly one is going in one direction, one is going the other direction. Before I get into that, I got to mention this because it's probably something you have never heard of before. And like I said, as these shows progress, I'm trying to find news tidbits and stories that people have forgot about over the, in the past that I think are worth bringing up. I know I mentioned last week about the incident with the birthday card and the 10-year-old and Batista overseas, but this is a 180 of one this week. No, it doesn't involve Batista, but still, it's a really cool moment. First off, Glacier, wrestling for WCW, did a charity show uh, at his old high school in Georgia. They drew about 1,200 fans, raised $30,000, and it was all given to a 10-year-old to help pay for a surgery uh, because he was born with a defective arm. So not only did they have this event, Goldberg, who had been visiting a children's hospital in Florida earlier in the day, got on a red eye and showed up in Georgia to appear at this event as well. And some of the other WCW wrestlers and personalities who showed up at this charity event this day, Disco Inverno, Hacksaw Jim Duggan, Canyon, Ron Reese, Mike Tenay, Chris Benoit, a couple of Nitro girls, and um, Glacier. So I think that's a pretty cool thing. Even Goldberg going from Florida to Georgia for two charity events. That's awesome. So now we get into the in-ring product. This week in 1999, what do we have on Nitro? Well, one of the things was uh, Ric Flair being locked in a mental hospital in Florida. Yeah. Uh, Look, we look back on it, and there are some funny moments in it, him dancing in his robe and Scott Hall being in one of the gowns as well. But for the most part, people didn't think it was uh, a really good way to book in Ric Flair at that time. That same night on Nitro, early in the night, Sting defeated Diamond Dallas Page to become the WCW World Heavyweight Champion. By the end of the night, Diamond Dallas Page beat Sting to get the belt back. The end of the night, they did a four-way between Nash, Goldberg, Page, and Sting. So the beginning of the night, Sting won the title from Page. The end of the night, Page won it back from Sting. There you go. And to wrap up that week for WCW, it was not a good week for Hoover Tucarera and Jerry Flynn. They were in State College, Pennsylvania, and they both were arrested late that night on drunk driving charges. Not only did they get arrested for drunk driving, but Hoovy was arrested at gunpoint, charged with DUI, fleeing the police, reckless driving, and running several stop signs. Uh, They let him out on $10,000 unsecured bail, not bond. So that's even more serious. Jerry Flynn was charged with a DUI and released on $5,000 bail. Um, 
So there you go. Both were tested at a point two blood alcohol content, which was double the legal limit. Now, to be honest with you, I haven't researched the case at all. I think I'm going to. Just curious to see what the outcome was. It's probably not going to be that easy to find because this happened in 1999. And I know a lot of states have their court records available online, but not every state goes back that far. You know, as I talked about last week with Scott Steiner's arrest for threatening that DOT worker, not only was I shocked to find the amount of paperwork online, but it was very careless as well because, like I said, his social security number was posted. There was some personal things about Scott Steiner that most, for privacy reasons, most states will blacken it out, exit out. But, you know, I was able to find it. So there you go. Now we get to WWF that week in 1999. Uh, we had the Backlash pay-per-view. Steve Austin uh, defeating The Rock in a no-holds-barred match to retain the WWF title. And I have a couple of moments from this card. And the reason why I decided to include this clip is because there was a very famous moment that took place during this match. The only thing that I will say is it involves Steve Austin, The Rock, a headset, and a portable camera from the cameraman. Well, we, I think we should warn our Spanish commentators... You may have, you may have some incoming amigos. Hasta la vista! What's he gonna do? Oh, Austin, I would suggest that you guys, uh, disappear Oh, a little roll on the rock. Wait a minute! No, no! God almighty! My God in heaven! Austin just got the rock bottom to the table, to the concrete!
to regain the oh, WWE oh, title. <laughs> and a low blow. Again, no holes barred, and Shane McMahon was clapping his hands in approval of that low blow. No, I think he said, look, he's, he's, he's sort of getting on the Rock's case there. Shane is Shane's laying down the law to the Rock, too. Oh, tell him to get back in the ring. We've got it now. Oh. We, we got it, Rock. Take him back to the ring. We got it. Is that what he said? What are you, a lip reader now? Oh, but I can hear pretty well. Hey, look out. Oh, watch on. yourself. Look at this. Look out. Come on. Now, wait a minute. Oh, man. Look at this. The Rock using our, our announce table here as a, as a tag team partner. We've seen enough here. Chairman of the board right there. got to get him in the ring. Come on. Enough's enough, damn it! What? Enough is enough! What is Rock doing? What are you doing? Give me the camera. Rock coming during the camera. You can do it all! The Rock is using the camera! fucking hilarious that time when the rock started cutting promos during the match and then he picks up the camera and he's looking he's panning the crowd and he comes back and he sees steve austin he's giving him the middle finger he's like oh shit and then he gave him the stunner with the camera through the table very very memorable moment to this day entertaining as fuck so that happened this week in 1999 on Backlash. That same event, two other matches that I really enjoyed that I remember from that night, uh, Mick Foley defeating the Big Show in a boiler room brawl. Mick Foley bled like a pig, especially at the end. Just watch the end of that match and you see how much blood that he was gushing. I mean, uh, it's good that it happened at the very end because he definitely needed to be stitched up. And we had Al Snow over Bob Holly to win the Hardcore Championship. You know, not, you know, the matches infamously of brawling in the water and the pond or the bowling balls, but still, this match was a lot of fun. And it was fun also because they fucked up some cars in the parking lot and one car, every time you hit the car, like the horn would beep a couple of times. So they decided to do it over and over and over and over again. And it was funny, funny shit. It really was. But the main audio clips to play for this week in 1999 had to do with Raw and had to do with SmackDown. I have, I think, three audio clips to share now, and each one sets up the other. So first, we have Monday Night Raw, and we have, you know, The Undertaker, who at this time was deep into the Ministry of Darkness storyline against 
Vince McMahon, just really, really cult Undertaker. Some people honestly think the ministry was their favorite part of The Undertaker's entire career. Some people love American Badass. They love Big Evil. They love The Dead Man. I don't know, man. The Ministry of Darkness was some fucking wild shit at that time. I kind of put the ministry near the top of the list as far as my favorite moments in Undertaker's career. And, you know, you look back on it, and that probably was a point where The Undertaker was least reflecting his own persona. You know, but still, it was this week in 1999 that The Undertaker had kidnapped Stephanie and then showed up on Raw and they were going to do the unholy marriage between Stephanie and The Undertaker. Now, if you've never seen it, especially SmackDown, when Stephanie comes out with Vince, Stephanie looks like she's 16 years old. I mean, it's just... They did it so brilliantly, and I guarantee you it was not, like, overly thought of at the time. Stephanie was not an on-air character. And I know we are very critical about Stephanie over the years. I always talk about her bipolar character on TV. It's all over the place. But you go back at that time and realize that this woman was not an on-air character yet and was just in the beginning stages you know, the way that she portrayed herself, you know, tied to that Undertaker symbol, is she's going to be married? I mean, her she was, was excellent. And then her playing the innocent daughter the following, you know, a couple of nights later on SmackDown, and she's standing in the ring. I think she was wearing, like, red or turquoise or something, and she's got that innocent look on her face while Vince is cutting the promo. I mean, she, she did fucking great. I mean, I don't think, I'm trying to remember at the time, I don't think we were that thrilled that every member of the McMahon family was being now thrown on television. I know I wasn't thrilled about Linda, uh, and I'm pretty sure I wasn't thrilled about Stephanie all that much, even though you look back on it, she did a great job. Shane McMahon, though, when I get into his audio, I'm playing it for one reason and one reason only. With Shane McMahon back on the WWE product, a lot of people don't feel that he's all that great with his promos compared to yesteryear. And for those out there that may have just completely forgot early Shane McMahon, as far as cutting promos, was he extremely polished? No, but I don't know. I go back to this time and I just thought Shane was just absolutely phenomenal for the, for the amount of time that he was on TV to be cutting smooth, believable promos like this. It was excellent. So I bring to you now first, let's first start it off. Undertaker brings Stephanie to the ring, tied to his cross or Undertaker symbol, and Paul Bearer tries to perform the unholy marriage between the two. Just moments ago, has not been seen since. 
Undertaker offered to return Stephanie in exchange for ownership of this company. And, and Vince McMahon had the documentation, he said, and went to deliver that documentation to The Undertaker in a place that The Undertaker prescribed. But The Undertaker was not there. I can't, I can barely make out it's Midian and, and Viscera and the Acolytes and oh my oh, it's, God. She's strapped on that symbol. Is Stephanie McMahon going to be sacrificed here? Vince McMahon went on a... A fool's errand while they were here, evidently all the time. And now, The Undertaker and the Ministry have brought Stephanie McMahon to the ring, struck to that symbol. This is absolutely heinous. Absolutely diabolical. This is the personification of evil. And I, there's nobody ever been a bigger fan of The Undertaker than, than just JR, I'll tell you, but my God, those days are over. This is not right. This young woman has nothing to do with any of the evils that this man may or may not have ever perpetrated to The Undertaker. JR, you know the saying, the sins of the father. But in this case, has even Vince McMahon ever, ever committed a sin that would justify this happening to an innocent young girl and, and there's, nobody to, somebody, there's nobody to do anything about somebody it? Somebody has got to come out here who has the courage to come out here and stop this. You would think no matter what you think of this young lady's father, anybody with some guts. of the Undertaker. This is the Undertaker's plan. He is the, the maestro of this evil orchestra. She scared me. scared to death. ceremony begins. I must address the McMahon family. I am not to blame for what is about to happen here. Vince, this rests upon your shoulders because you did not live up to your end of the agreement. And Steve Austin, well, I guess he just showed his true colors as well. Paul, let the ceremony begin. Vince tried to live up to the, the agreement. He wasn't there. Poor Stephanie, this is, this is so sickening, this demonic human being. What kind of ceremony? I have no idea. Into the 
sanctuary of eternal darkness. Keeping this in mind, will you, Stephanie Marie McMahon, accept the purity of evil and take the Lord of darkness as your master and your spouse? Hell no, she's not. Wait a minute, look, look, there's Samrock, Tim Samrock, Samrock with a ball back. But Samrock taken down quickly by the acolytes. And oh, that's 500 pounds of viscera. Just broke Samrock apart. They trapped him, they trapped him before he had a chance to use that bell, that bad Hold on, hold on, hold on. If it Lord gets bad, we'll make our move. Not until then. You got it? Just chill out. To accept Stephanie Marie McMahon, her body, her mind, her soul, and even her breath unto yourself and allow her to bear your offspring. No! Yes! Look, the Big Show! The Big Show's here! It's showtime! And the Big Show just caught Farouk! And here comes the big man in Visra attacking the Big Show. Right hand by. The Big Show's getting through the line of defense. The Big Show is swinging. The Big Show is destroying whatever. Oh, God. Oh, Undertaker just shot that baseball bat. Undertaker just hit the Big Show with a ball bat. And they're on him now. They're on him.
So now we have Steve Austin saved Stephanie from being married, aligned. I guess maybe that would be a better way to put it with The Undertaker. So now we go to SmackDown, and Vince McMahon opens up thanking Steve Austin. Remember, we're right, you know, after the Steve Austin versus Vince McMahon storyline, which, you know, was the biggest storyline at that time. So Vince thanking Steve Austin was, you know, little out there. Now, I don't want to spoil it because in the upcoming weeks, there is a major swerve that goes down. But we'll save that swerve for when it happens in history. Let's just stick to this week. So now we're on SmackDown. Vince McMahon is in the ring with Stephanie, some security guards. He cuts a promo thanking Austin and is interrupted by Shane McMahon. And this is all going somewhere. And this is why I'm actually sharing this with everyone. So enjoy it. Again, very impressive work by Shane McMahon, especially when you realize how early in his career as far as an on-air character was. But uh, this happened on SmackDown, and then this will lead to the third and final clip, which basically puts this all together. Please welcome Stephanie and Vince McMahon. He is the owner of the World Wrestling Federation. He's run this company for two decades. But what a hellish week it's been for Vince McMahon, flanked there by his young daughter, Stephanie McMahon. That's right, the the abduction by The Undertaker and the ordeal that Stephanie went through, the ordeal that Vince went through to finally get his daughter back in the fold. And you see the security still here just to make sure something like that doesn't happen again. Stone Cold Steve Austin staged Stephanie this past Monday night on Raw despite Austin's deep hatred for Vince McMahon, Stephanie's father. But as you can see, Vince McMahon, very excited, elated, extremely happy tonight. I'm extremely proud to stand before you here tonight and even more proud to be standing next to my daughter, Stephanie. However, I'm proud of a lot of my personal accomplishments, but not so proud of some of my business ones. And I'd like to address that. And you're right, I have been that. Yes. I have been that, and hopefully, hopefully I can change. That has been me. In my business life, there's no question I have been ruthless, uncaring of others, In the past, certainly, I've stepped on a lot of toes. I dare say I've even crushed a few. And I've all done it in the name of business, and sometimes I've done it at the expense of my family. So I have an opportunity now to do something about that. Is Tonight, I take the first step in regaining control of my own company. I know that I will certainly be competitive, no doubt. I'll be a competitive SOB as far as my company is concerned. But along the way in the future, I'm going to stop, smell the roses, and I'm going to thank those individuals who have helped me become the success that I am. And I'm going to start, by the way, with thanking tonight 
not only the world's most dangerous man, but certainly a man who is at least that loyal. I'd like to thank Ken Shamrock for helping Stephanie. I'd like to thank as well. I'd like to thank the big show. I'd like to thank him and his heart that's every bit as big as his 500 pound body. Again, for coming to the aid of Stephanie. And most especially, I would like to thank Stone Cold Steve Austin. Whoa! You ever think you'd hear that? Never. I would also like to personally thank Ken Shamrock, The Big Show, and most importantly, Stone Cold Steve Austin for helping me with The Undertaker on Monday night. I was taken against my will, stripped of my clothes, and dressed, and dressed in a black gown for an unholy wedding. And I have never felt so powerless and violated in all my life. The Undertaker, he kept, he kept touching me. And whispering in my ears that I was his. And there was nothing I could do about it. So Steve, I'd just like to say, from the bottom of my heart and my soul, for whatever reason you did it, thank you. I will never forget what you did for me. And Undertaker, I hope you burn in hell. Strong words. Imagine what Stephanie McMahon had been through. So Stone Cold, I hope you can hear me because tonight, I'd like to make a promise. I'd like to make a promise to you, Stone Cold. I like. Uh oh. No Family trouble brewing. That Shane McMahon, co-owner of the WWF and Vince's only son. He's on the stage with his streamlined corporation. And Jim, it was just a few weeks ago that Shane McMahon rebuked his father, humiliated Vince, seizing control of the corporation while Vince was distracted by the Undertaker's threats to Stephanie. Shane McMahon has had it the way he's wanted it his entire life. He's had everything handed to him. The only thing he's ever taken on his own was his own father's company, and it looks like Vince wants that company back. Shane McMahon on a serious power trip in recent weeks. Triple H, China, the boss man, and a, the Mean Street Posse here to be Shane McMahon's backup, Michael. Yeah, the Mean Street Posse. Punks from Greenwich, Connecticut, who grew up with Shane McMahon. Now at his side every step of the way. And the chance once reserved for Vince McMahon, now being thrown the way of his son Shane. First of all, what are you doing here? You know what, never mind, I don't even want to hear it. I have to address one thing. Last Monday night, when The Undertaker abducted Stephanie, 
Do you not think that myself or the entire corporation would have been there for my own flesh and blood, my sister, if something bad were to have happened? Do you not think I would have been there for you? What type of human being do you think I am? What kind of a human being do I think you are, Shane? I think that... Shut your mouth. That's Whoa. enough out of you. I don't even want to hear it anymore. Total disrespect yet again. All of a sudden, Vince McMahon is out here apologizing for how you used to run business. What happened to the most ruthless tycoon in the history of the world? You all of a sudden grew a conscience overnight? And then it makes me sick to my stomach. I almost regurgitated in the back. You're, a, you're out here thanking Stone Cold Steve Austin for saving your precious little daughter, Stephanie, daddy's little girl. Want to steal a line from Stone Cold Steve Austin. You know what? As it relates to business, I don't give a rat's ass about daddy's little girl. I don't give a rat's ass about Stone Cold. And I don't give a rat's ass about you. What the hell has gotten into Shane? Power! Well, then maybe you should give a rat's ass about this. Oh, oh, I got this. Yo, 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 yo. Back it up. Back it up. Hold on, back it up, Hunter, China, I got this one. Just chill out for one second. Better step back. Matter of fact, you know what? You better get your attitude out of my face, Vince, before I slap the wrinkles out of yours. Come on. A son talking to a father like that. Now you may leave and take your precious little daughter with you. Get to stepping. This is my show. I'm running things here. See ya! You know, one day, Shane, you may be a man. Tonight, you're acting like a petulant little boy. Well, let Wonder Boy show you to the door. That's it. Corporation, escort them out. There you go. There it is. Let's give Vincent Stephanie, daddy's little girl, a big hand. Thank you very much for coming here this evening. Sayonara. You know what, Vince? You know what? Daddy's little girl, Steph? That's right. Go back, get in your limo. You can be home in about 35 minutes, and you can watch the rest of SmackDown on television. See you later. So sad. Too bad. Bye-bye. Adios. Sayonara. Stephanie hadn't been there. I think things may have been different. Vince staying above it all. Warning his son he'll get his one day, and then taking Stephanie to leave the arena. And you hit it right. Jim Shane McMahon is drunk with power, no doubt about it. Now that little nuisance is over, let me get down to business right here this evening. You see, there have been two thorns in Shane McMahon's side as of late. Two people, a matter of fact, and they're both tied for number one on Shane McMahon's hit list. And that is the so-called people's champ, The Rock. And Stone Cold Steve Austin. Now, since you both have had such a nice history together, since you can't get along at all, you want to tear each other's heads off, you know what? Tonight, in this very ring, Stone Cold Steve Austin will be teamed up 
with the Brahma Bull, The Rock. Whoa! No, you, that's never happened. Arch rivals teaming up tonight. The only thing I need now is some opponents for Stone Cold and The Rock. Are there any volunteers? Yeah, of course, corporate sellout. Triple H, contestant number one to take on The Rock and Stone Cold Steve Austin. Are there any more volunteers? The posse one in. Everybody's volunteering. Are there any takers? Wait a minute. Stephanie McMahon, my bride and servant. See, Austin, what you've done is stick your nose in a place where it had no business. Monday night, you played the role of the spoiler. Tonight, I'm going to play multiple roles. Judge, jury, executioner. tonight on SmackDown against Triple H and The Undertaker. What? Can you feel that power? Can you feel the power of Shane McMahon? And why does this all happen? Because Shane McMahon said so. The third and final clip basically puts the first two together. We have The Rock coming out, cutting a promo on Steve Austin. Now, there was a match hyped up for later on in the night involving Austin and The Rock teaming up together. They were going to take on Undertaker. You, you, you'll hear it all. But then they're interrupted by Shane McMahon. Everything pieces together because it is announced that we have an unholy alliance formed. Enjoy. Folks, we got perhaps one of the greatest tag team matches in the history of the WWF coming you up tonight. You smell what Stone the Rock is Well, this is one thing we do not have on our formats. Later tonight, that man, The Rock, will team with Stone Cold Steve Austin to take on Triple H and The Undertaker. The Rock, a former WWF champion, a three-time champion, and Jim at 26 years old, the future of sports entertainment. Well, he is the most electrified man that I can think of in this industry. He is also the most charismatic at this point. He has a large following and an equally large number of enemies. The Rock joined the corporation for fame, for power, for money, but Shane McMahon excommunicated The Rock this past Monday night. And as for the big matchup tonight, where The Rock will team with Stone Cold, don't expect cohesion. Don't expect a tremendous... 
Shane McMahon, Triple H. Last Monday on Raw, you two jabronis decided to check both your candy asses in to the SmackDown Hotel. So you go on and let the great one be the first one to break the bad news to you two. Rudy! Like The Rock was saying, let him be the first one to break the bad news to you two, Rudy Pooh Candy Asses. That you damn sure checked in, you two will damn sure check out. But you don't check out without a little departing gift from The Rock, which is his fist in your mouth and his foot in your ass. Well, that's different than a mint on your pillow. Now, as far as for you, Stone Cold Steve Austin, you and The Rock, tonight, tag team, make no mistake about it. You damn right, we'll fight the fight. But we ain't partners, we ain't buddies, and we damn sure ain't friends. So if you so much tonight get in The Rock's way, this Brahma Bull will dip his head, take his horns, and stick them straight up your ass. Let me come out here and get this straight right off the bat. Last week and tonight, you come out here talking all your trash about Stone Cold Steve Austin. I'll tell you this, you will always be, in my eyes, some punk kid running around out here spitting out nursery rhymes. Saying what you're gonna do, turn your little horns sideways, because you're the Brahma Bull. Uh-uh. Stone Cold Steve Austin will knock him stupid horns right off your head, wipe your ass, put you on a barbecue grill, and that's all I got to say about that.
Do you know why? Because my plan is getting bigger and better as we speak. was so cool about that night on SmackDown, besides the corporate ministry, besides the Rock and Austin teaming up, besides the whole thing with Vince and Shane, I didn't even mention, this was the first ever episode of SmackDown. It was a pilot. This wasn't even planned at this time to be a weekly series. But because it scored such a high rating on UPN, I think it was like a 5.8 rating at the time, a few months later, they would pick up SmackDown as a secondary show. So how Thunder hurt WCW in a big way, SmackDown elevated WWE even more. And if you do some research, you learn that the creation of this second brand, the second show, Put a lot of stress, not only on the wrestlers now working two shows a week, not including house shows, but also the writers as well. And there's been a lot of reports over the years that Vince Russo and Ed Ferrara would ultimately leave WWE. And one of the factors is the extra workload that would have been involved to do SmackDown. Now, I'm sure they probably would have been paid a lot more to do SmackDown as well. But, hey, at that point, maybe they wanted a different challenge, a little bit of a lighter schedule. Yet, we ended up with Thunder, if you think about it. So, pretty, pretty interesting. Looking back at 1999 with WWE and SmackDown. 2000, Bob Backlund officially announces that he is going to be running for Congress in Connecticut. Backlund 2000, I have told this story going back to my hotline days. I will never forget going to a WWF show in Long Island, the Nassau Coliseum, and Bob Backlund was around the, like, concession area. He had a little booth set up, and he was selling shirts, buttons, hats, taking photos, autographed photos. He was raising money for his campaign. 
And I remember going to the event and someone saying to me, Backlund is in a concession area signing autographs. I went over there, spent about 15 minutes with him, talking about, you know, just a lot of wrestling, garden, Ridge Grove Arena, my grandmother, just, it was fucking awesome. And uh, got picture with him, bought merchandise, and I just, if I remember correctly, everything was red. Backlund 2000, bought the hat, bought the shirt. It was cool. It was really cool. I mean, obviously, he didn't win his race, and I don't know if there's any audio or video press releases from 2000 with his announcements. I know there's a lot of news articles, but it was this week in 2000 that he officially announced his uh, that he was going to be running for Congress. So, nice, very nice. That same week, very important week in the history of Brock Lesnar and the WWF. Nobody will talk about this, but it's a big deal. Next week especially. You might remember about five weeks ago on an episode of This Week in Wrestling History, I covered uh, Brock Lesnar winning the NCAA Heavyweight Championship. It was March 18, 2000. Since winning that title, a lot of pro wrestling organizations wanted Brock Lesnar in their company. New Japan wanted Lesnar. WCW was interested. WWF was interested. Now, I know Brock Lesnar at this time met with Eric Bischoff and Vince Russo. I do not know if he ever met with New Japan. I have never read or seen reports of him flying to Japan at this time in 2000, nor did I ever hear about representatives flying into the States to meet with him. However, Brock Lesnar did meet with Kurt Angle, Gerald Briscoe, and they pretty much sold him on coming to the WWF. So, I know we're going to go go one week ahead with this, and I'll mention it next week as well. But after discussions this week between Brock Lesnar and the WWF, Brock Lesnar decided he was going to sign with WWF. Next week in history, he actually signed the deal in Stanford, Connecticut, and he was going to immediately be assigned to OVW Wrestling and was going to reunite with his training partner, Shelton Benjamin. So... Very important week in the career of Brock Lesnar in pro wrestling because it was this week in 2000 that Brock Lesnar decided he was going to sign with WWF. Now, I'm playing a little bit of bullshit controversy right now. I'm not saying that this is true in any way, shape, or form. But when you look back at events and things that happened in a certain year or a certain week in history, you know, you got to play, you know, a little bit of fun with it and think. Is it possible that one of Brock Lesnar's decisions to go with WWF instead of WCW has to do with what transpired this week on WCW television? Now, when you realize that a title change took place on WCW television this week, and then two days later, Brock Lesnar says, you know what, I'm going to sign with WWF. I don't know if anybody has ever put the correlation together and ever asked the question, do you think that maybe one of the reasons Brock Lesnar decided to go with WWF was because this went down this week in history on WCW Thunder? Oh, she does. She's wearing a slingshot. Oh, the deck is stacked and so is the referee. That what? That's her husband. That's her husband. Almost that X. she's jobbing right there. Almost X. Oh well. Papers I don't think have been signed. One, two. Quick count. Oh, Page. 
Come on, count! Oh, this is grossly unfair. This is the woman that walked with him to the altar. How could she do this? I mean, every man wants to be the WCW champion. And for Paige, a cover again. One, two, Paige has to, he can't even take a breath here. What happened to our count? I don't know. He's all gone? Is that what Bischoff just said? Knowing Bischoff, he's probably in a package someplace being mailed overseas. Well, yeah, he was beaten up and he was bruised already. He had no cause to be in here. And now, literally two on one. Easy. Two, no, I'm sorry. Three on one. Three on one. Very good call. The world heavyweight champion. Drug his feet momentarily early in the show and then finally agreed to it to save his friend David Arquette from further beatings. And now there is nothing he can do. I don't even see how he can hold on to the title. They chant DDP. They chant DDP. But can he do this? Peter, you call this an even playing field? WCW and anything can happen here. But it's the way Bischoff and Russo want to run it. If this is their idea of an even playing field, then it is for me too. But these two have gone on each other since the beginning of this match. It shows you how much Jarrett wants this win. He sticks out the bottom jaw to us. Page to try to pull himself up for all he's worth. But meanwhile, the double team Bischoff. Hell yeah! What about that? DDP digs down deep. Connects with the clothesline. Double clothesline. What spirit from Page? But he digs down deep, Mike. about Jared and about Bishop, but he's got his wife and his mind full time. That time, Kimberly gets kissed by DDP. Who can score the pinball here? Spear by Arquette. Oh, Jared's got the belt. Kimberly went down in a heap. There's no referee, guys. There's a, there's a referee. He's over towards Arquette. One, two, three. What? What? Now look, do I really think after Brock Lesnar saw David Arquette winning the title that he thought, you know, I better off going to WWE? No. A little conspiracy theory, just having fun with it. But they did happen two days between each other, so I figured I'd share it. And look, as far as David Arquette winning the title, you know, I, look, it's been so much discussion about this over the years. I'm not going to give my two cents on it. What I will say, though, is that I think a lot of people forget that David Arquette wrestled on Raw. Didn't he get put through a table from Randy Orton, if I remember correctly? But that doesn't take away the fact that he won the title. But you know what? After WWE puts a tag title on a 10-year-old kid at a WrestleMania, you know, and I've said this before, that guy, that kid JJ that got the Warrior Award, if they would have done it with him, I might have been fine with it a little more but just the fact that you actually are acknowledging a 10 look you do it you strip the titles you you know a 10 year old is not allowed to compete that's fine but when i go on wwe's website and i see that this 10 year old nicholas is acknowledged as a champion is now listed as the youngest champion of all time I know this is entertainment, and I know we're supposed to just be lighthearted about it. If that's the fucking case, then shut the fuck up about David Arquette winning the title. Was it ultimately bad for business? Sure. At the time, look at the crowd reaction when he won. 
at the time, look at all the publicity that that got. At the time, they had the Ready to Rumble movie, which really, it sucked, but this all tied in with each other. And he didn't keep the belt on him for a long time. They treated him as champion the way you would treat an actor as champion. You know, he got conceded, but he really didn't know how to wrestle, and he ultimately lost it almost immediately. So, honestly, I can't shit on the David Arquette title win as much as others do. All right. Should it have happened? No. But I can't bitch on it as much as I know a lot of others out there do. So, and wrapping up 2000, Steve Austin returns to WWF TV. He had been out since November of 99 with neck surgery. And this was a pretty famous moment. Now, you look back on it and you ask yourself, why was there so many explosions? You know, if uh, a beam hits the top of a, a, a bus, you know, you, you, I mean, look, I hate to use these comparisons, but we saw recently a bridge collapse and it crushed the bus. You didn't see all these crazy explosions and fireworks and lighting up the sky. So, yeah, it was theatrics, but... This week in 2000, Steve Austin returned. And in the parking lot was the DX Express tour bus. And Steve Austin was operating some CDL equipment. And he used a crane to drop a steel beam on the top of the DX Express bus and caused this major explosion. May, I don't know. Maybe the DX bus was filled with explosives. Maybe they were terrorists. I don't know. But... It was a little hard to believe at that time, but still, it was a great visual. Absolutely. 2001, Steve Carino becomes the NWA World Heavyweight Champion. He defeated Mike Rapata in Florida. Now, if you look at that this is the same year that ECW went out of business, this was less than two months later of ECW folding that Steve Carino won a major title. So he is now in the NWA. 2002 on SmackDown, Randy Orton makes his first WWF TV de appearance. He debuted in a match defeating Hardcore Holly. Remember Randy Orton because we do have a little sound clip later on. 2003, Backlash's pay-per-view. Goldberg defeated The Rock. This is very important because this would be The Rock's final match until WrestleMania 20. And on this same card, you had the Big Show defeating Rey Mysterio. And why am I mentioning this match? This is the match where they had the infamous moment where Rey Mysterio was strapped to a gurney and Big Show picked it up and just smashed him into the corner post. Great fucking visual. <laughs> and the funny thing is, unless maybe Rey's head hit the, the back of the gurney, or maybe there was some vibration. I don't know if that would have really even hurt him. If anything, wouldn't the gurney have protected him? But still a great, great visual. And wrapping up 2003, we got some bad news and some good news regarding Steve Austin. First, the bad news. He made it official on WWE.com that he was retiring as an in-ring performer. He said, and I quote, in this business, I've learned never to say never but I would probably say 99.9% .9 out of 100, you'll never see The Rock and Stone Cold in the ring again. I'm not wrestling anymore. That was my last match. I've got some serious problems in my neck. It's too long and too complicated to discuss. But a lot of the reasons I walked out of the company seven or eight months ago were things I didn't want to talk about at the time because we had WrestleMania coming up. The biggest reason I walked away was because my health is going downhill so badly and it cannot compete at an acceptable level to me, 
and at a risk factor that's high enough to me. Everything I do in that ring is very dangerous and makes me go either, even further downhill. It's potentially something where I could end up being a quadriplegic. That was the biggest reason I walked out. The creative and the political issues were just icing on the cake. The straw that broke the camel's back. I refuse to go out there anymore, perform at a substandard level, and have people judge me on what I'm putting out right now. I had a hell of a run, and I'm completely satisfied with it. And that is stuck. That really has. Um, but it's not all bad news because that same night, later on, after that announcement on WWE.com, on Raw in Boston, Massachusetts, WWE had Steve Austin return as the co-general manager of Raw. Remember, remember the night after WrestleMania, we played the clip, Eric Bischoff firing Steve Austin because of health issues? Well, it was this week on Monday Night Raw where they brought Bischoff and Austin together as co-GMs of Raw. It's pretty cool. Speaking of retirement, we stay on that theme for a moment. 2004. Landstorm announces in a statement that he was going to be retiring from wrestling full-time and he would be working as a trainer going forward. Now, he would stay pretty much retired for about 10 months. He returned to the ring in late 2004 or early 2005. However, um, he opened his wrestling school in May of 2005 and uh, has been pretty much retired. You know, he always used the word full-time. So there was always the chance of him having a match here and there. But for the most part, Landstorm is a full-time wrestler. It was pretty much done this week, 2004. And wrapping up 2004, a segment that I did not like. I did not like Randy Orton spitting in the face of the legends. You know, I, I understand in hindsight why it was done, and it was really to get Randy Orton over as a heel and just a flat-out asshole. And you had the legends that were trying to help build Randy's career. I don't know. Just the way that they did the one with Harley Race. I just didn't like it. Did not like it. So if you want to see the visual of it, you could go online and actually watch it. But the audio, I think, just gives that same powerful effect as well. Again, was fine with the legend killer gimmick, but spitting in the face the way they did... I don't know. I just did not like it. Randy Orton, the winner of the hardcore match against the hardcore legend, Mick Foley at Backlash, the reigning intercontinental champion. Randy Orton staring at him. Did I just hear somebody use the word legend? I guess, I guess that word's being used on just about anybody these days. But make no mistake about it, the only legend in this arena is standing in this ring right now. Now, now Harley, now, I'd haste to burst your bubble, old man, but I've accomplished more in my two-year career than you have in your entire life. 
What's wrong, Harley? Am I getting under your skin? You, you, you don't seem to like what I just said about you. I'll tell you what I'm going to do to you, Harley Race, exactly what I did to Mick Foley. Oh, no. No. This is disgusting. Please, no, please. Oh, God! Randy Orton just spit in the face of Harley Race! Harley Race is... An armed Harley Race! But wait a minute! Sheldon Benjamin! Sheldon Benjamin! Come into the ring to get in the face of Randy Orton! Now we get to 2005, and it was a very sad week in 2005. We lost Chris Candido. And there was a chain of events that went down that week, which led to his untimely passing. And still to this day, it's one of the uh, saddest moments, being a wrestling fan, especially becoming friendly with him, um, thanks to Mass Maniac, obviously. And I've told some personal stories, and you know, I've also brought up in the past you know, Chris's brother, Johnny, who was an awesome, awesome fucking guy. You know, he was involved with a documentary that came out for Chris Candido. And one of the coolest things that's ever been a, been approached to me, ever doing these shows, was getting a private message from Johnny saying, hey, I want you in on this documentary. I want you to tell a couple of those personal stories of your friendship with Chris Candido. Me, me. And I turned it down. And the reason why I turned it down is because I just felt like, what nobody, I, I, I'm a nobody. What nobody? I'm a nobody. Who wants to see this nobody on a documentary? You got all the famous wrestlers. You got all promoters. You got all these famous people on there and family. And then you got me. You know what I mean? So it was like, I just felt out of place. I just didn't, I, I kind of regret it because some of the personal stories I've never told publicly some I have, you know, about uh, the XPW stuff and how WWF wanted to keep him as a trainer. They wanted him to groom a, a very young Rocky Maivia. There's some really, really cool stuff with Chris Candido, and he is sorely missed to this day. But the chain of events that caused this TNA pay-per-view, it happened this week in 05 lockdown. Early on in a tag team match between Chris Candido and Lance Hoyt against Apollo and Sonny Siaki, he broke his leg dislocated his ankle and you know you see it on tv it's hard to watch i mean he was re he really you know got hurt 
had the operation on his ankle, plate, screws, pins, whole nine yards. And um, one of the things that you really not, it's not recommended to do, in fact, you're not supposed to do is fly shortly after a surgery. It's dangerous. You can develop blood clots. In no way, shape, or form am I saying that the him flying is the reason that caused him to pass on. Okay? You, when you get... I had ankle surgery three times since my car accident. And when I had the surgery, one of the things that the doctor had me do is I had to keep my leg elevated when I was in bed. I also had this machine strapped to my leg that it would keep uh, contracting and it was supposed to keep the blood flowing. It was supposed to do it to prevent blood clots. And I would have to do this repeatedly, repeatedly. So, you know, it's, it wasn't a plane. It wasn't rehab. But somehow, you know, he got back to New Jersey. And he developed a blood clot. And he was, I, I, I remember clear as day. He, I think he was at a dinner table. And um, he collapsed. And they found a blood clot. And that's what caused his death. And I, in fact, talked about this, I don't remember what show it was, about a month ago. You know, it's one of those do you remember when moments, and I, I tell it to this day. I, I, I still have my black Lincoln Mark 7, but I also had a white one back in 2005. And I remember at that time I had a problem with my sunroof, and it wouldn't close. And I was going to Long Island to eat at my, my friend's restaurant that he had recently opened up. And I remember parking my Lincoln in his parking lot and like taping a shopping bag to the top of the, the, the window because I didn't want someone walking by and throwing like a soda can inside the car or maybe someone trying to jump in it or God forbid it rained. So I, I remember taping the shopping bag to the top of the window and the moonroof and started walking into my friend's restaurant and my cell phone goes off and it's the mass maniac, Frank Goodman. I answer the phone. It was the early evening, and he's crying. I mean, really, really crying. And I said, what's wrong? And he says, uh, Chris is gone. And for a split second, I didn't know who he was talking about. And then I realized it, and I was like, no. And he's like, yeah, he passed away. And it was rough, man. It was really rough. You know, I became friendly with him, you know, talked to him many times outside of doing hotlines and stuff like that. Uh, like I said, a lot of personal stories that, you know, I know his brother Johnny is aware of. And they were cool enough where he wanted me to be on this documentary and I turned it down. I kind of feel guilty for turning it down. But like I said, I just felt like, you know, what nobody wants to see see or hear me. You know what I mean? So it was uh, this week in history. Now, look, there's a lot of other things that transpired since. You know, there was some issues with the way TNA handled it. I think they gave, didn't they give Tammy a, a turkey? You know, they try, I know what they were trying to do. They were trying to give like a sympathy basket, but I don't know. I heard turkey or something. They, like it was just the way it came off. It was just not done the right way. And I, and I don't think anybody was, you know, it was just, just didn't work. It was just didn't work out well. You know, it was just the way it was done. It was an awkward thing. I mean, uh, they didn't want to air, Footage of him on TV, but the Candido family gave their blessing, so TNA aired uh, footage on television. It was just a, it was, it was sad. It was really sad. And you know, we did the memorial shows since. It wasn't just Frank Goodman; others have done it as well. And Chris Candido's memory lives on. It's just amazing that it's this many years gone by. So there you go.
2006, Viacom gives the green light for a third season of Hogan Knows Best. But they also announced the development of another series, wrestling-related. It was called Wrestling Society X. So did not debut on MTV until early 2007, so we'll cover it in another time. But it was this week in history that it was announced that uh, a new show, Wrestling Society X, was going to start being filmed. Speaking of filmed, also in 2006, World Wrestling Legends airs its only pay-per-view in its existence. It was called 605 The Reunion. It took place at the Hard Rock Cafe in Orlando, Florida. And the 605 reference was a little tribute to when uh, WCW Saturday Night used to air on TBS at 6.05 p.m. The card from that night, for those that are curious, Rick Steiner over Virgil, Hacksaw Jim Duggan over Nikolai Volkov, Coco Beware over Disco Inferno. Superfly Jimmy Snooker over Greg DeHammer Valentine by DQ. Eddie Colon lost to Vampiro. Kamala and Jake the Snake Roberts. Uh, Jake won by DQ. Mike Graham and Dory Funk Jr. over Tully Blanchard and David Flair. Diamond Dollars Page over Canyon. Bob Armstrong, Scott Armstrong, and Brad Armstrong defeated the Midnight Express. Bobby Eaton, Dennis Condry, and Stan Lane. Scott Steiner over Buff Bagwell and a dark match after the pay-per-view ended. Johnny B. Bad and Russ Rollins defeated the Blue Meanie and Norman Smiley. So there you go. And to wrap up 2006, WWE presented Backlash. You might remember an audio clip I played a couple of episodes ago where Vince McMahon announced that he was going to team up with the product of his sperm, Against Shawn Michaels and God, uh, well, that took place this week in 06. Vince and Shane did defeat God and Shawn Michaels. 2007, Tyler Breeze makes his pro wrestling debut. He wrestled under the name Matthias Wild and defeated Rage O'Reilly at the PZW event in Alberta, Canada. Also in 2007, Steve Austin uh, starred in the movie The Condemned. First release by WWE Films, came out in theaters this week, bombed. Lots of negative reviews, critics did not like the film at all. Only grossed about $4 million its opening week and $7 million after a month. Internationally, it originally only took in about a million. Um, at that time, they felt that the movie had lost about $16, $16 million dollars. But once it came out on DVD, they made all their money back and then some. So maybe as far as the movie itself, it was not widely uh, enjoyed by critics. Did well amongst DVD and home video sales, so good for them. 2009, unfortunately, the demise of Reed Flair continued. Local TV in Charlotte had reported Reed Flair would, in fact, be facing felony charges after being arrested, charged with driving while impaired, driving with a revoked license. Um, he had heroin on him. Uh, he posted bond. But at that time, I don't know if you recall, but uh, Rick Flair and Reed Flair were doing something with Ring of Honor and uh, this recent running with the law would pretty much ruin that. And we know the unfortunate passing of Reed Flair not too long after this, but it was this week in 09 that, you know, the legal system really started to uh, hit 
the Flair family hard. Reed Flair was going to be facing felony charges. So 2010, we had sort of a Monday Night War. It was Raw versus Impact. First off, Impact only scored a 0.5 rating. At that time, the lowest rating ever in the Spike TV era. Uh, it was not good. The main event of Impact that night was Abyss defeating Ric Flair in a Hall of Fame ring versus Hall of Fame ring match. Remember, didn't Abyss have Hulk Hogan's Hall of Fame ring? Fans did not like it at all. And uh, on Raw that night was the draft, the 2010 version of the draft. They had eight draft picks done during the show, and they did 11 more the next day with the supplemental draft. If you're curious... Who went where in the 2010 draft? <laughs> the number one pick. The number one pick. Going from Raw to SmackDown, Kelly Kelly. The remaining picks going from Raw to SmackDown. Big Show, Kofi Kingston, Christian, Chavito, Cody Rhodes, Chris Masters, Hornswoggle, Rosa Mendez, and MVP. Going from SmackDown to Raw, John Morrison, R-Truth, Edge, Chris Jericho, Great Khali, Natty, Ezekiel Jackson, Goldust, and the Hart Dynasty. So there you go. Also in 2010, WWE released uh, Hall of Famer Tony Atlas. You know, the ECW brand pretty much done, uh, and and him not being used all that much, they let him go. Also in 2010, uh, Lisa Marie Verone, a.k.a. Tara, a.k.a. Victoria, announces online that she was going to be leaving TNA. She says, and I quote, it appears that I'm winding down with TNA. Unfortunately, some organizations leak information to wrestling websites to put their spin on a situation to make sure they come out in the best light. Not me. I'm going to say it. I'm going to put my name on it. I'm going to stand behind it. I came to TNA last year because I still had a lot of wrestling in me. I was paid a fraction of what I thought I deserved, but I wanted to show I was still at the top of my game. Now my contract is up in May. I wanted a modest pay increase. They didn't want to pay me what I thought was fair. I have no problem going my own way. But about 12 hours after the conversation where we didn't agree on pay, unnamed sources claim that I'm hard to work with, that I don't give my best effort. My only response is that TNA made an aggressive effort to resign me, amongst other things saying that they want to build the women's division around me. And I think wrestling fans see both on TV and at live events, I always give 100%. I take pride in that. Smearing me on the way out the door is an act of a second-rate character. I take pride in making my best effort to to elevate my own wrestling and the entire TNA women's division. If people were rubbed the wrong way in the process, I stand behind my work and my positive intentions. In closing, I will say this. In a few weeks that I have left in TNA, I will be the same wrestler that you've seen for the past 10 years. After that, I haven't decided if I will stay in wrestling or finally make the jump to MMA. I do have a lot of irons in the fire. We'll see where their life takes me. But wherever it is, there's going to be competition, and I'm going to give my all. She would leave the company for a total of uh, two months. She would return, and then she would stay with the company until the summer of 2013. 2011, this week, the WWE held their draft And for those that are curious who went where, well, first, let me give you the number one draft pick. From Raw to SmackDown, it was John Cena. And obviously, as you will hear these names, you know, these names seem to be a little bit more of name value compared to the last one or two drafts. Anyway, going from Raw to SmackDown, John Cena, as I said, 
Randy Orton, Mark Henry, Sin Cara, Daniel Bryan, The Great Kali, Jimmy Uso, Alicia Fox, William Regal, Yoshitatsu, Natty, Jey Uso, Ted DiBiase, Tyson Kidd, Tamina, Alex Riley, and Sheamus. Going from SmackDown to Raw, Beth Phoenix, Tyler Rex, Kofi Kingston, Chris Masters, Kurt Hawkins, Drew McIntyre, JTG, Kelly Kelly, Jack Swagger, John Cena, Alberto Del Rio, and The Big Show. Now, you might be saying, wait a minute. Wasn't John Cena the number one pick? Well, believe it or not, John Cena, at the beginning of the night, went from Raw to SmackDown, and then later in the night, went from SmackDown back to Raw. Yeah. (laughs) Go figure, right? Go figure. Also in 2011, Nick Gage sentenced to five years in prison after pleading guilty to one second-degree count of robbery. He was also ordered to pay over $3,000 in restitution to PNC Bank. Remember, he had robbed that bank. You know, he blamed it on addiction to painkillers, and uh, I think he even may have had a little bit of a gambling issue. He would uh, be released from prison in November of 2016. And for all I know, I heard he's doing pretty good right now. So good for him. Good for him. 2011, WWE also launches their Be a Star campaign. That was anti-bullying. And they still have that campaign, I believe, to this day. 2012 on SmackDown, Cesaro makes his WWE debut, defeats TJ Wilson on SmackDown. 2012, Extreme Rising presents its debut show, Extreme Reunion, from the Pennsylvania National Guard Armory in PA. It was presented as an ECW reboot, but this was the infamous event where Sabu and Just Incredible both showed up in no condition to perform. Go online, read the recaps, the fan accounts from that night. This did not go over well. It's a shame. It really is, but it did not go over well. 2012, Raw, Layla defeated Brie Bella and Nikki Bella in a triple threat match in 11 seconds to retain the Divas Championship. The reason why I mention it, it would be the final match for both Nikki and Brie Bella. Their contracts with WWE were set to expire, and they were not going to be renewed. And, um, you know, they did the storyline on TV that Eve Torres, which was serving as the GM, and John Laurinaitis' assistant, She, quote-unquote, fired the Bellas on TV. But as we know now, less than a year later, the Bellas would return to WWE. And, you know, they're still around with the company to this day. 2012, you know, they did an interview with The Rock. And, you know, it's a pretty interesting interview to read these years later. It's not that long, much, you know, not that much time has passed since then. But a lot of focus was about Dwayne Johnson possibly one day running for president. I know in this day and age, it is all the buzz that The Rock might run for president. Well, back in 2012, they were talking about it as well. And, you know, obviously at that time, it was way too premature of an idea, but it was something that was talked about. Now people are starting to take it a little bit more seriously. Do I think The Rock will be president? They never say never. But uh, I don't know. I have talked about this before on the other shows. I think he needs to run for local office somewhere, get that under your belt, and build a political career, not just go right into the fucking big game politics, you know, presidency, you know, and try to win strictly on popularity. 
It's just a whole different animal. Unfortunately, it was this week in 2014 where Connor, you know, the kid that's behind Connor's Cure that we obviously see uh, talked about to this day, and uh, they have a very uh, worthy charity that raises money. Um, it's a nonprofit. It helps children's cancer. But it was this week in 2014 that that little kid Connor had passed away from brain and spinal cancer. He was only eight years old. So uh, really sad, really sad. And wrapping up this episode, 2015, Bad News Barrett defeated Neville to win the 2015 King of the Ring tournament. I remember doing the shows and just ripping this apart. I mean, it just, the tournament just came out of nowhere and it was done to give Bad News Barrett the, the King of the Ring moniker and it just never, it never clicked. It was just not good, not good at all. This week, also in 2015, Jeff Hardy suffers a broken leg in a dirt bike accident. Many people may forget, Matt Hardy recorded the stunt that Jeff Hardy did that resulted in the broken leg, and I believe it's still available online. Thank God he's recovered from that. But shit, you see that stunt that he tried to do? You know, it's it might have been a blessing in disguise that he had the injury because if he would have succeeded in that, some tells me... He might do something even more risky and even more risky, and who knows what could have happened. So thank God that he's recovered from that. Wrapping up 2015, WWE had some releases. They let go Mason Ryan, Shaw Guerrero, uh, Danny Burch, Oliver Gray, who actually was a tag champ in NXT with with Neville, and uh, Sarah Backman, who was an arm wrestling champion. And I actually read that she is married to Bodless. So not sure if that's true, but, you know, that's where I read it. And finally, 2017, yeah, that much time has already gone by. We had the terrible, horrendous, dumb, dopey dumpster match on Monday Night Raw between Callisto and Braun Strowman. Now, look, after that, Braun Strowman threw Callisto in the garbage uh, bin and threw him off the stage, and all that looked cool. And, you know, you had all the people surrounding Callisto as if he was dead. Whatever. Everybody knows my feelings on Callisto. You know, I enjoyed that segment. But, you know, to just see Braun Strowman, like how you win the dumpster matches, you just have to, like, fall in the dumpster. And he just falls backwards, and he's standing up in the dumpster, and, he, and that's how you lose. You know, it would have been better if you fall in a dumpster and you have to close the door and something like that. But Jesus, it looked like a little kid that jumps in one of these inflatable pools that are like one feet high. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, that's what it looked like. I mean, Braun Strowman falls backwards and he's standing up and half his body's outside the dumpster. And I'm like, that's it? And it was horrendous. Pathetic. Notable birthdays this week. Those celebrating birthdays who are no longer with us. Frank Gotch, Luthez, Don Leo Jonathan, Killer Carl Cox, The Blue Demon, Jerry Blackwell, Yukon Eric, and Billy Joe Travis. Happy birthday. Rest in peace to all of you. Paul Roma turns 58. Tank Abbott, 53. Kane, 51. Eugene Nagata, 50. Chubby Dudley and Ron Reese turn 48. Johnny Devine, 44. Jay Lover and Titus O'Neil, 41. Jay Lover, yes, the same one that I used to manage BQE here in the Northeast. Very, very cool guy. Very cool guy. Homeboy from this area, neck of the woods. Vladimir Kozlov turns 39. Alex Riley, 37. 
Ricky Landell, Amazing Red, and Oksana turned 36. Sean Riddick and Eddie Osborne turned 35. Sean Davari and El Hijo del Fantasma turned 34. Jay Lethal, 33. Drew Gulak and Brittany Savage, happy birthday to both of them. They turned 31. And finally, notable deaths this week. These are those who we lost this week in history. Big stacked list this week. Fern Gagne died at age 80, 89. Luthez, 86. Hans Schroeder, 74. Tom Ernesto, 72. Johnny Valentine at 71. Lee Marshall at 64. Playboy Buddy Rose at 56. Angel Blanco at 49. Brazo de Oro at 47. As I mentioned earlier, Chris Candido, 33. And Bialor the Giant, 31. Bialor, I know majority of you out there have never heard of. He was a local guy here in the Northeast. I believe he also trained with Johnny Rods. I actually met him a couple of times. Saw him on at least two or three shows. Not great. You know, big guy, heavy. But very well liked. From what I saw as far as him, you know, dealing with other people, very nice, very respectful. I mean, one of the persons early on that, you know, you, you're in a locker room and you go up to people Hi, my name is so-and-so. How you doing? Nice to meet you. Do that with everyone. And that was one of the things I noticed very early on. So he passed away as well at 31. So anyway, I hope you enjoyed this edition of This Week in Wrestling History. I will be back next week with episode 18. Should be a lot of fun. And uh, I know it's going to be stacked as well. So please, as always, leave your feedback, leave your comments. Follow me on Twitter, at D. The website, DonTony.com. Email me, DonTony at DonTony.com. If you want to check out the archives of all of our episodes, even the other shows, www.DonTonyKevinCastle.com. Our Facebook page, which is DTKC Show. And as always, if you like what we do and you want to help keep the shows free, keep the bills paid, keep the lights on, and in the process, get even more content and material Give our Patreon page a shot. It is patreon.com slash Don Tony. We just did a pay-per-view contest on, on the site. This week in wrestling history, get advanced releases there. I host the show every other week with Anthony Missionary Thomas of Wrestling Soup. It is called Breakfast Soup. It's a combination of Wrestling Soup and Breakfast of Blossy. Done so many episodes already. There's hundreds of hours of entertainment there. Kevin Castle does a solo show, Castle Chronicles. For everybody out there that always wanted a Kevin Castle solo show without me talking, you got it on Patreon. Hundreds of hours of content. Check it out for five bucks. You could sign up for the whole month. Get access to everything. Take part in the contest, the giveaways. It is such a small, tight-knit family there. I'm telling you, it's really, really cool place to be. And not only that, I, when I say that everyone there are stockholders in what we do, it is true. I mean, I can't tell you how many times feedback, comments, opinions, ideas are suggested there for all of the shows, and we heavily weigh everybody's opinions there more than you could ever know. So check it out. I'm telling you, you will absolutely love it there. Patreon.com slash Don Tony. I am out of here. Enjoy the rest of the week. I'll be back in one week with your next edition of This Week in Wrestling History. Take care, everyone. Be well. Ciao. Cloud is powering tomorrow's transformative missions. 
Federal agencies are partnering with SAIC to help them meet these critical moments, where bold moves require confident blueprints, where you can accelerate transformation through consistency, where you can innovate forward and never look back. SAIC quickly and securely migrates large-scale workloads to the cloud with the confidence you need to assure your mission. Learn more at saic.com cloud. Tú sabes, cuando ordenas un videojuego o unas sábanas nuevas y luego llegan a tu puerta, te emocionas un poco, ¿no? Ahora imagina lo emocionante que es ordenar un auto nuevo y luego aparece en tu casa invitándote a conducirlo. Con Nissan at Home, compra el auto perfecto en línea desde donde quieras y el concesionario te lo envía directamente a tu cochera. Esto seguro supera cualquier orden. Así comienza la emoción. Los servicios pueden variar en los concesionarios participantes. Sujeto a la ley aplicable, consulte al concesionario para obtener más detalles. 